It's an all-new episode of View the Right Thing with Wes and Steve. On this installment, Wes and Steve discuss an American in Paris and a single man. And now, View the Right Thing. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of yes. View the Right Thing. Indiana Jaws, you meant to say. No, View the Right Thing. He was dancing when I was doing the intro. Mm, I could have sworn we agreed that it would be Indiana Jaws from this point forward. Agreed nothing. Oh. So, uh... This week, yeah, this week, pretty good movies. Um, we did one of which is called An American in Paris. So I feel like we should address just real briefly, real quickly, our our thoughts and feelings on the uh, attacks in Paris. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, for those that don't know, go to CNN.com or something and do a little learning. If anybody doesn't know, engage in the world. I, I highly doubt anybody that doesn't know knows how to find and listen to a podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. But uh, obviously, um, we uh, were very saddened by oh, yeah. by the loss of lives and and the attack on on people and culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, because we do a movie podcast, art is very important to us. And um, when we see that um, horrific things happen especially in art venues um, mm-hmm. that's, uh, um, you know, hard hard to, to see. So, it's gross. Yeah. It's what it is. So for anybody over there uh, or anybody that knows anyone or anybody that's just negatively affected by this, we feel, we feel for you. And uh, I think that's about uh, all I want to really get into. There's a lot we could talk about, but, you know, I don't think that's really what our podcast is. So Sure. I agree. So I think we'll we'll just um, go on from there. Paris. All right. Vive la France. <clears throat> so uh, Steve. Yes. Have you seen any movies in the last, like, you know, like week or two? Yes. Have I seen any movies in the cinema in the last week or two? It's a different story. Um, but. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I mean. Uh, well, I did see Path of the Jedi. But that probably doesn't exactly count. Is that uh, the thing at Disneyland? <clears throat> uh, yes, in the uh, in the theater where they used to show Captain EO, um, it's now Path of the Jedi, and it's basically a trailer for the first six Star Wars movies. I am hearing every S out of my mouth. I'm hearing it too. Man. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, for the first six Star Wars movies, and then um, and then at the very end of it is. A pretty nice little reel of uh, stuff from the seventh movie, and I have been avoiding watching the Star Wars trailers because I didn't want to see them just on my phone or on a computer screen. But seeing them in that theater with the vibro seats mm-hmm. and on the big, huge, beautiful screen with the really great sound, I was like, "This is exactly how I wanted to see a trailer for this movie for the first time." I feel better, and now I've got. My Star Wars buzz back. I was yeah. becoming kind of a Star Wars Scrooge. Do you have tickets yet? No. Oh man, um, you're behind the game, man. No, I'm gonna. I'm just. I might just roll the dice and go alone. Like, cause when the tickets went out for sale, I was like real broke that week. So I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna roll the dice, see what happens. I'm gonna just maybe try to find a single seat somewhere on, uh, you know, on on Thursday night. Or maybe just buy a really early, early ticket show for uh, for a Friday morning. Yeah. Maybe do both. Maybe buy that early Friday ticket, and then if Thursday night rolls around and I just got to go see it, then I'll just go see it, you know? Yeah. Because, of course, I'm going to want to see it again right away. I'm seeing it in New York. 
Whoa. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. So, The Coruscant of America. The Coruscant of America. Yeah. Um, so anything else? Any other, any real movies in the theater in the last week or two? In the last week or two? I don't think so. Well, I, I had a bit of an, uh, a, a bit of an emergency out of town uh, trip to do. Yep. Didn't see any movies doing that. Um, you want to say hi? You want to say hi to your pop? Well, sure. Shout out to my dad, uh, good old Fred. He uh, had a really big uh, heart surgery happen. What was it? A quadruple bypass or something like that. Wow. So, any of you viewsters who are familiar with that, you know uh, the kind of experience that is as a relative of somebody who's going through that. But he's doing well. He's ahead of schedule on all his uh, all of his uh, recovery stuff. Um, he's able to get up on his feet and do some walking his breathing's getting better they said his heart is really strong anyway it was just that you know his arteries and whatnot were were causing him problems and everybody out there quit smoking cigarettes yep for the love of tennis quit smoking cigarettes please um but it was a fun little trip got yeah. to see relatives i haven't seen in 12 years hung out with my cousin dave who like was probably like the closest in age to my brother and i what'd mm -hmm. we do we watched all the Star Wars deleted scenes from all six movies, baby. All right. Because that's how we bond. Uh, what else? I got a whole bunch of SAG screeners, so I've been working my way through those. Oh, hello. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Should, maybe we should have some movie night that's not related to uh, View the Right Thing. Maybe. I've got uh, 24 screeners right now. I sure would. 24 of them. I sure would like to see one Here's of Here's the thing. I'm sworn... Are you, are you not supposed to show them with people? To, people? I don't think they mind that so I know you much. can't like lend them out. Yeah, it's like, don't lend them out. Definitely don't let anybody copy them. Definitely right. don't let anybody take them and try to sell them for money. But I think if I were to responsibly bring it over, watch it, take it with me when I leave, right. I don't think they mind that. But, yo, I got Mr. Holmes. I got Furious 7. I got Sicario. Room. Uh, oh, ooh, Love and Mercy. I watched Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson story oh, with cool. Paul Dano and John Cusack. That was beautiful. Wow. Heartbreakingly beautiful. What else? I watched The Burbs last night. That's probably not a screener, though. I mean, just because it's a 26-year-old movie, does that mean it's not up for these awards? It, it does mean that, yes. I think I think it should be. <laughs> I think it should be. Shout out to Rick Dukeman. May he rest in peace. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's about it for my movie-going adventures. Yeah, I uh, I saw a couple of movies. Let me hear about them. Well, one one is uh, being done, um, there's a little podcast being done by our own Desiree. Uh, so she's going to talk about one, but I'll briefly... Desiree that I saw here a moment yeah, ago? Yeah, that's the, one, the very one. So I'll talk, I'll talk briefly about <clears throat> uh, that movie. Yeah. Um, since her, her thing is coming out before this one, this podcast. All right. Uh, it's called Landfill Harmonic. <clears throat> I saw it at AFI Fest. Uh, let's address the AFI Fest uh, kerfuffle a little okay. bit. Okay. Um, there were because of you know you had you had to go out of town and you weren't available and um, I had some transportation situations arise and whatnot. So we didn't actually end up seeing very many movies. We saw one movie at AFI Fest this year, which uh, is it over already? It's over. It's done. It's only Whoa. A week long. So um, so that was a little disappointing. I will say. I wasn't, like, gaga over any of the film possibilities. Oh, yeah? Um, there was one or two that I thought looked really good. One called The Lobster. with The Lobster. Um, what's that guy's name? The Irish guy. Uh, um, Col Meany? No, no. Colin no. Farrell? Colin Farrell. Oh, yes. I saw a trailer for that. Yeah, Colin it Farrell looks great. John C. Riley and a bunch of other people. That, that one looks pretty good, and I hear good things about it. I hear, I hear award buzz about that. Cool. Um, and there was a bunch of galas 
which are all big movies that are coming out anyways, like yeah. the big short, which also has a lot of Oscar buzz for it. Um, yeah. Uh, Carol, which has Oscar buzz for it. Um, Carol. It's Kate Blanchett and uh, I think Rooney Mara. That sounds vaguely familiar. I feel like I've seen yeah, it looks, a trailer for it. It looks really good. Oh, uh, Kyle Chandler's in that, and I'll watch anything with Kyle Chandler. The coach from Friday Night Friday Lights? Night Lights, yeah. The dad from Super 8? Dad from Super 8. The he's in Bloodlines. He's in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. The boss from Zero Dark Thirty? Yes. Yeah, Kyle Chandler. Yeah, yeah, Kyle Chandler. I love Kyle Chandler. He does good work. Yeah, he does. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, we ended up only seeing one film at the festival, and it was called Landfill Harmonic. It was a documentary. <gasps> yeah, about the instrument kids. About the instrument kids. Yeah, these kids um, that uh, they their families essentially live like near a landfill, and uh, in um, in what part of the world? Uh, now I'm blanking a little bit. Argentina, maybe. Okay. Um, and so, uh, the how people sort of survive there is they um they go through the landfill yeah. and they recycle items, and uh, the the sort of like the guy who sort of instigates the what happens in the film yeah. um, is a guy that, that moves out there to teach them how to recycle better and to get a better living and better lifestyle. Wow. Um, than kind of living in these... I mean, they live in like... Some of them live in houses. Some of them live in like in kind of huts. Oh, wow. And uh, <clears throat> so this guy goes out there to teach them that and sees that there's a need for education and something and, and enrichment in the children's lives. Cool. So he... Um, he decides to start to teach them how to play music. All right. And he works with another man who used to be somebody, a garbage picker. Um, All right. He's essentially retired now. Uh, and this guy would find objects. And um, I think it started with uh, he found a broken violin and he wanted to repair it. So he used pieces of garbage, like pieces of sheet metal or, or mm. cans or, um, you know, various... Uh, wooden pieces yeah. and cobbled together a violin and so they started creating instruments for these kids and they they cre- they created an orchestra and they, they learned music and uh, this is like fat albert in the junkyard game way better like, way better with real talent yeah it's it's amazing um the one of the cellos was made out of like a big oil can really and uh and oil can and it has like a camera with the 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 piece of wood was for the neck for the neck but like you know the little parts that you turn to tune it yeah um some of them was like like a little noki instrument and one of them was uh uh the heel from a, a high heel shoe oh wow yeah i mean it was really really cool um and uh huh. it's a, it's a really beautiful story about art and love and community and per- especially perseverance. There's a lot that they go through. Not just the fact that they're living in, you know, uh, an an area, a part of the world that um, yeah. is economically, you know, you know, a hardship. Yeah. Them. But um, there's a lot more to. It. I don't want to give too much away. Sure. But the movie um, took them six years to make. 
Wow. So it really it really spans quite a quite a period of time. And we were really, really fortunate for seeing this at the festival because after the screening they had flown the kids there and they played their instruments for Whoa. us. They played they played a couple a few songs. So That's um, incredible. Yeah, it was really a really great experience, especially having seen it and it, it ended up winning the audience award, the World Cinema Audience Award at the oh, festival. Oh awesome. And um it just uh was a lot of fun to watch and it really gives you a lot of hope the film so i like it i definitely recommend if you get a chance to see it if it comes out in theaters or if you get a chance to see it on video um please check it out um sounds beautiful yeah the uh the the guy who teaches the music the guy who kind of who kind of kicked the whole thing off he he said something really i thought was really interesting his his um his like sort of mentality regarding it was yeah. really about the community and about how you know he said um the world gave us garbage and and we gave them back music you know that's pretty cool yeah and um and somebody stood up and it was like a really like a really clear view of how skewed we take things here mm. in in our country and they asked how can i buy one of the instruments wow they wanted to buy one of the instruments thinking you know a garbage cello. I think they thought it was cool. Yeah. And it would be neat to have. Um, but I think also they were thinking, well, I could give them money. Yeah. And they could use that money for stuff. Um, and they don't sell them. And wow. They, and they don't sell them for a few reasons. Um, he said that if they sold them, it would create a, a price value for them. Right. And then all of a sudden, um, it would be dangerous for these kids to be walking around in this town ah. um, because people would be trying to sell them. And they, right. They, and he said, like what's happening with real instruments right here in the LA unified school district. Sure. And I'll he, go into that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he said, um, not everything that has value has to have a price. And I thought that's a good one. That's a really great, um, quote for sort of the, the feel of the film. Yeah. Because there's so much that, is valuable in this film and the, in the events that happens in their lives. Wow. Um, and it's, it's, you'll laugh and you know, you'll, you'll have a really good time and you really feel for these people. It's, it's a really great story. That's great. Landfill harmonic. Landfill harmonic. Keep your eyes out for yeah. it. There's a great, there's a great, uh, trailer out for it. Nice. Yeah. You, I've seen you. that trailer and I'm going to try to stifle a sneeze right now. Yeah. All right. Stifle that sneeze, yo. So I saw another film. Okay. Slightly more controversial in a weird way. I saw the new James Bond. Spectre. Spectre. Now, I'm a big James Bond. Fon- Bo- James Bond. James Bond. I can't even say his name. <laughs> I'm a big... I buy all but the, you're a big Jane Bond fan. The the big the knockoff DVDs from James overseas. Fond. Um, I, I, own, I own all the Blu-rays. Uh, I, uh, even I, for the Timothy Dalton ones? I own every single one. Yeah. Cool. I, um, I, oh, I'll tell you which one I don't own. James Bond Jr., the cartoon? I don't own that either. I don't own the um, Peter Sellers Casino Royale. Ah. I don't actually consider that to be a part of the series. It's uh, um, it's definitely different. So, uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big fan. I watched those movies with my dad um, as I was growing up. Um, Excellent. So uh, I have a, a fondness for them. We had a an empty seat next to us at the Aww. theater for him. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I watched, watched the film. I think, um, there's a couple of weird, maybe misconceptions going on with the film. It kind of got beat up by critics a little bit. That's what I'm hearing. Um, and of the critics that I read, I don't read a ton of them. Um, but the ones I read, I generally not always agree with, but, um, 
I, I definitely respect their writing. Um, Drew McWeeny over at uh, HitFix is one of them. I really like uh, his writing. Cool. He used to write for Ain't It Cool News. All right. And, uh, you know, he, he really, really didn't like it. He said it, it tainted all the other Daniel Craig films for him. Whoa. Um, That's how I feel about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay. Um, so I went into it, like, with, you know, very cautiously. I didn't read anything yeah. really about the films, just what people were feeling about it. All right. And then afterwards came back and read the reviews. And some of the things in the reviews that people complained about were things that um, were actually explained in the film. Like, oh, this doesn't make sense. And oh. I was like, yeah, there are scenes in the film where they explain this. So it does actually make sense. So, right. So I felt like there were some things that maybe people were missing about it. Um, it is definitely a more fantastic James Bond than the last films, the okay. last Daniel Craig films, in that the stunts are, uh, you know, things where you go, well, that that can't happen, or no one would survive that. Yeah. Um, so they st- sort of start to move out of the realm of of this realistic, dark, gritty thing. It's still fairly dark, but okay, um, not like not like Casino Royale. It's not dark sure. like Skyfall. There's no uh, bottomless chair scene. There is no bottomless chair scene. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But I felt like at the end of Skyfall, they sort of put a little end cap on the dark, gritty, serious James Bond. And they were going to move that that direction anyway. So I felt like that was coming. And I think maybe some critics and some viewers were surprised by it. They didn't pick up on that at the end of Skyfall. And so they weren't prepared for it. And so that was off-putting to them. Okay. There is one pretty valid criticism that I thought um, that I've read several times. And that's um, it doesn't fit with the other films. And the valid part of that is um, they make a really concerted effort to connect it to the previous four films. Oh, okay. Or, sorry, previous three films. But um, then it doesn't fit. It, it, it They fit. The connection's there. Sure. And, and and I feel like it makes sense for the most part. Um, there's more story that could be told, I think. Okay. Um, to make it feel better. But if you're going to connect this movie to the others, it tonally probably should be the same. Hmm. And the fact that the tone is different, especially with the stunts and sort of the tongue in cheek, you know, it's, it's more those first three, the first three films were kind of the, um, the Sean Connery esque era of bond. Yeah. And this was more of the Roger Moore Hmm. era of bond. And so, um, you know, if you're going to try and connect them together, it probably should have a similar tone as the three previous films. All so right. I think that's a pretty valid criticism for it. But but I did like the film. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Do you worry that the next Daniel Craig James Bond might be more George Lazenby era? I don't. I don't. I think, okay, if, that's I think good. if we get a one-off Bond, I think that's when we're going to worry <laughs> about that. But, um, I, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a fun film. I think Daniel Craig's going to come back. I think him sort of blustering about it is silly. I think he's going to come back. I mean, he was contracted for five films anyway. Oh, okay. So, um, now he, I'm sure he can get out of it, but, hmm. um, but he's going to come back and do one more. I think. I don't think Sam Mendes will come back. And no, do another one. No. Um, hmm. But uh, I would like to see Idris Elba be a James Bond. Sure. And after watching a single man, I, I started thinking to myself, man, Colin Firth, he could be, he could be James Bond. Interesting. Well, now he's doing uh, Kingsman. Kingsman, and that, and then, and then I Planner. thought about that. I yeah, thought, I thought about the Kingsman thing. I thought, well, that could be, that he could be an interesting Bond. Oh, absolutely. Because the Kingsman character is very different. But do you think they'll? Bond. Are they going to make more Kingsman movies? I mean, did you see the Kingsman? I did. They might as well. It was a blast. Let's uh, let's let's throw a spoiler alert in here. 
first. Oh, wait a minute. No, yeah. don't. Because so I think I just realized. Yeah. Okay, right, right. So, um, so, yeah, so I think he could be an interesting James Bond. But we'll 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 end it there. Uh, I'm uh, Colin, uh, I mean James uh, Bond. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think Colin Firth is such a charmer. Don't get me started. He is, I th- and, I, and I think he's so suave. And, and um, we'll, we'll talk about single man in a little bit. But, um, you know, seeing him in those 60s suits... And yeah. driving that that Mercedes like that with the wood paneling and stuff. Just, yeah, he could be cool. James Bond. He, uh, I got to see a screening of Girl with a Pearl Earring when I first came to town. Mm-hmm. Colin Firth and Scarlett Johansson were there to do a Q and A. Yeah, Scarjo um, was young. Yeah, and you know she's Scarjo. She's beautiful. Mm-hmm. She's like widely considered one of the most beautiful women out there. Um, Colin Firth stole the show at that Q&A. That dude is so funny and charming. Yeah. And just like, all of us were just like, Scarlet who? It was crazy. Yeah. I was 20 feet from both of them. All eyes on Firth. It I was he- so weird. I hear he's tall. I don't remember him being he's that tall. Well, but then again, I tall. didn't get all that close to him and either. You're tall. He's over six foot. Six foot. I hope. Yeah. I hope so. But we'll, um, we'll, let's address the tall thing. If you remind me later, I, I got a little thing about the tall thing relating to this. Oh. But I think we should, I think we should jump into, unless you got anything else. No, man, I'm good. If I, if I think of something, I'll, you know, bring it up if it's appropriate, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So, Are we going single man first? No, 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 no. We'll okay. An American in Paris first. All right. Um, all right. Here we go. American in Paris. Everybody, right. I hope you watched it. Uh, I hope you did too. First of all, I had never seen this film. I feel like we jinxed Paris by watching this film. Oh, man. You know, let me address this again real quick. Okay. We always have these weird connections with our we films. and do. Either what's going on in the world or the fact that they randomly get paired together. Yeah. Um, so there's this Paris thing. And, and also, it's the the both titles are one individual, an American in Paris. A and single, a single man. man. And I think that's also strange. Yeah. Um, but anyways. Hmm. Um, well, well, let's let's jump into it. Did you like this movie? Hmm. Maybe I should ask you after we talk about it. <laughs> no, I'll I'll say this. I can see. I can I can see its importance along the the filmmaking timeline. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like now in this day and age, this movie's just not for me. That's all. Okay, I'm not. I myself, I'm not, having gone to school for theater and everything. I'm not crazy about musicals to begin with. I oh, see. I love musicals, and you know, I, I'm not crazy about dance numbers, especially uh, 20 minute dance numbers. So it's just not for me. I enjoyed it while I was watching it. You caught me tapping my toes. I bet. Yeah. Well, during mm-hmm. all the songs and stuff. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't think I'll ever see it a second time. All right, that's fair. There, the, the end I said is, it. The end is long. We'll, we'll address that in a moment. It's uh, it's quite the musical number. And again, it's beautifully done. Yeah. It's it, all it's, spectacular, but I'm just kind of like, it's I don't need to watch it again. Yeah. So the movie was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Wow. It won six. Wow. That's uh, it's 75%. So it won Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Score, Best Costume Design, and Best Picture. But not best smile for Lisa. No. Interesting. Lisa. Um, so the producer, Arthur Freed, is really well known for doing musical, movie musicals. Um, that was sort of his thing. He's not really known for his dramas, although he did some some poignant things. But did he do Paint Your Wagon? I don't believe he did Paint Your Wagon. Oh, okay. Um, he right. did a lot of Gershwin-related type things. But um, 
so he was playing pool one night with mm-hmm. Ira Gershwin, George, right. George Gershwin's brother. And late into the night, about two o'clock in the morning, he asked Ira Gershwin to sell him the rights to an Amer- the name "An American in Paris." Oh, it's, it's a very famous song. All right, which you hear this, you hear the song quite a bit in the in the movie. I believe you. Um, the ballet, the ballet number is "An American in Paris." That makes sense. All right. So Ira Gershwin agreed to sell the rights to the name, but he stipulated that the um, all of the music in the film had to be Gershwin music. Wow! So every every song you hear in the movie, even there's a scene when they go to a club and there's a there's a band playing in the background. Yeah, they're playing band. they're playing a Gershwin song. Everything oh, that's in the cool. Movie is Gershwin. Yeah. So the movie starts with our main character. Paint. He's a painter named Jerry Mulligan. He's played by Gene Kelly. Right. He's he narrates our introduction to Paris, and we see all these really famous uh, locations outside the Opera House and uh, Notre Dame and Arc de Triomphe. Arc de Triomphe. The Eiffel Tower, of course. Eiffel Tower. Um, that that fifth thing. Yeah, sure. So Jerry lives in the tiniest apartment. Yeah. Um, Which he makes great use of. It's a one-room apartment. His bed hangs from the ceiling. Um, his table's hide in closets. He's got canvases and paint supplies everywhere. And um, so he narrates, and he wakes up in the morning, and you really kind of get to see the fact that Gene Kelly's a dancer in all things. Yeah. He's not actually doing a dance, but it, it looks like a ballet almost. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he dances his way through his apartment especially. Yeah. All of, all of his movements are like really well choreographed. He does these flourishes with his arms. He uses his knee, knees and his feet to you know move things and close doors. And then he looks over and he sees a self-portrait he's done in charcoal. And he, he gives it one finishing touch like oh, a, yeah. like a little like a little uh line under the under the mouth to just make it perfect and then he immediately takes a rag and he smears it oh kind of in my opinion no one's gonna have him or his art ah. not even himself interesting and he because he doesn't see and we hear this a lot from him in the film he doesn't think that he's ready to be a, re- a real artist he doesn't yeah. think he's good enough Darn it, Jerry. Come on, Jerry. Get some confidence in yourself. So then we meet Adam in narration. Um, yes. Adam is a composer and a pianist, <clears throat> and uh, he narrates his own intro as well. Um, he's an, also an American, and he's Jerry's friend. They live across the hall from each other in the same apartment building. Um, and then he's followed by uh, Henri, who uh, introduces himself via narration. And Henri is Adam's friend. And he's this extremely well-known singer. When he, we see sort of a POV of him walking down the street, everybody recognizes him, waves to him, and says yeah, hello to him. he is beloved in the streets of Paris. Something I really, um, really liked about this intro thing is um, each person's introducing themselves, and the first people you see. So when Jerry introduces himself, there's a man and a woman, and they like embrace each other and kiss. And yeah. He's like, "That's not me." And then we see. We hear Adam's intro, and we see a man putting birds into a birdcage, and he's like, that's not me. He's too happy. Yeah. And then when we, we get Henri's intro, we see this mirror and a gentleman adjusting his hat and his tie, and he's like, that's not me. And then he steps in, and this idea of not exactly mistaken identity, but sort of hidden um, hidden identity yeah. um, is important to the film. And I thought, I, agree. I thought it was like a really nice, subtle um, touch to put yeah. in the film. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. 
Can I uh, point out one of my favorite quotes? I think it was Adam who said it when yeah. he was narrating his own introduction. Absolutely. When he said something about uh, underneath this flabby exterior is an enormous lack of character. I thought yeah. that was a, a fun, <laughs> deprecating way to introduce himself. He's very self-deprecating. Oh, yeah. Uh, Henri goes to the cafe that Adam and Jerry, um, where they, they live above this cafe. Uh, he's he's there um, to meet uh, Adam. And, oh, I wrote, I wrote the wrong name down in my notes here. Whoa! The, and now the people who own the cafe, they fawn all over Henri. Yeah, he's a star. Um, and, but they practically ignore Adam. Well. So, you know, Henri comes in and they're like, he's like, you know, the cafe owner's like, oh, you want an omelet? And we'll get you some coffee. And Adam is hollering out for coffee and they just basically ignore him and fill up Henri's cup. Yeah. So Adam and Henri sit down for coffee downstairs and uh, Henri tells Adam about how he met this beautiful woman named Lisa. Oh, uh, yes. Not very beautiful. And yet she has great beauty. Yes. That's one of Henri's lines. And she she seems to be everything to Henri. Oh, Yeah. So Henri describes her, and Adam sort of uh, asks these questions. Oh, so you, you're saying she's this? And he's yeah. like, no, 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 she's not this. She's also got these characters. And he's like, so then she's this. And he's like, no, 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 she's also got these. So he keeps sort of like building the myth of Lisa. Yeah, Lisa, and, Lisa Bouvier. Is it, was that? Was which it? would have been Lisa Simpson's name if Marge had never married. Right. So we, um, so as he describes Lisa and, and talks about all these personality traits we get to see Lisa and she dances and uh, it's one of the many kind of montage or dream sequences that we see. Yeah. She's in different settings each time and different dresses yep. all in what, maybe like a two minute dance number kind of yep. thing. So we're seeing, we're seeing what this girl means to Henri and uh, what his dream of her is through this. And it's important because uh, the film is going to have all three of the men have moments like this in the film. So, um, I personally, I really loved the scene. It was one of my favorite scenes in the film uh, because and those two meet or her dance no, her uh, introduction, her yeah. dance introduction. It's like really vivid and colorful. Oh all, yeah, all the sets are different colors. The different dance styles are really fun to watch. Oh sure, um, and Lisa and Lisa, Lisa. She's played by Leslie Caron. I'm this, not familiar with her other than this. This is her first film. I don't know. I guess you haven't seen the movie Gigi. She's I thought I had Academy Award nominated film. Is it a musical? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Then I might have blocked it from memory. I remember seeing it on the video shelf a lot. Yeah, when I worked in video stores. Well, it's uh, that that one also has her. She's she's been in quite a few things. This was her first film, though. Cool. Uh, now she uh, Gene Kelly was insistent that they had an that they have an actual French girl play okay. this part. He he thought that the movie needed to feel more authentic. Yeah. Um, and we'll kind of go into this in a little bit, but they actually shot, did not shoot the movie in France. They I shot didn't the think movie, so. Uh, in California. Um, and so that was another piece of like Gene Kelly's insistence that, yeah. that they have some authenticity. He, he was visiting France and he went to the ballet and saw this performance about the, the story of the Sphinx and she was playing the Sphinx and she, you know, she was like up on this pillar and he was just like captivated by her and he cool he asked the studio if he could do a screen test and so they arranged a screen test and she didn't even know who gene kelly was really wow um i mean even though she's a ballet dancer she's like she didn't think much of it yeah um and she certainly didn't think she was going to do it she she thought that uh um that she why what's it going to hurt to go do the screen test and just kind of see what's going on but i don't want to do this i just want to be a classically trained ballet dancer for the rest of my life yeah and uh and then they they called her up and said, 
they want you for this movie. They want you in three days. Wow. So she went off to Hollywood to uh, be in this movie. Pretty fun. Yeah. So Jerry comes downstairs with a load of paintings to sell. Yeah. He's going to sell those on the street corner. And he seems to, at every corner, run into somebody else trying to sell their own paintings. Right. That's always fun. So he stops He stops uh, in at the cafe, and Adam introduces Jerry to Henri. Um, Jerry's, you know, hard up for money. He's definitely that starving artist type. Oh, yeah. And he needs to borrow some money for lunch, and Adam doesn't have any, and Henri offers. Mm. And Jerry says he can't take it because he doesn't take money from someone he hasn't known for at least 15 minutes. Ah. And Adam's like, I've known him for 15 years. So Adam borrows the money from Henri and then loans it to Jerry. Uh-huh. And then Jerry delivers one of my favorite lines. Um, he, he takes the money and then he walks up to Henri and he says, I wouldn't lend him money if I were you because he's a bum risk. <laughs> Gee, great. So uh, I thought that was like a fun fun little film. They, they proceed to sing a song. It's called By Strauss. Um, they they wanted to show not just this like the setting of Paris or just the setting of the cafe um, and introduce the friendship of these these three guys, um, but kind of also their lifestyle, this kind of um, bohemian lifestyle um, where they're interacting with all the people and the fact that the, even though two of these men are American, um, they're they're well loved by the people in the community. They right. everybody in the community comes like walks up to watch like you know other vendors and neighbors and children they all walk up to watch them sing and dance this song and even the cafe people like the people that own the building even though these these guys are poor and probably don't make their rent on time kind of right thing, um they they're so loved by these people that you know they they skate by i like that uh jerry heads out um to his corner and um along the way like you said he greets a whole bunch of different painters right do sure you, does do you remember like any of the five or six i think any of the painters I honestly don't. Cool. So, he, <laughs> so he, he like what what I remember about the the painters is that he um, each of the painters is painting a different style of of art. Right. Um, some are doing you know like one guy's doing some more abstract stuff, and when he picks up the painting, the guy has to correct him and turns it up. You know, Jerry's yeah. got it upside down. And then um, there's a a woman I think selling kind of impression impressionist type paintings and then he sees this older guy sitting down and we don't see what he's painting yeah but jerry walks by it and then he stops and he looks like he's got the shocked look on his face so i it's a wang i predict it's i predict it's a self nude portrait whoa oh they never show it huh they never show that's the right so i i think that it's at least a nude um yeah it's gotta be something it's, startling it's, it's an older stout kind of gentleman i think uh, <laughs> lends the idea that maybe it's a self-portrait nude um, so Jerry gets to his corner, he hangs his art and this American girl with a, ter- with terrible French comes up. She's just struggling to speak French to him. Yeah. But she's got, she's got like a stagey Southern American accent, oh, but yeah, she's yeah. speaking French with it. And it's pretty yeah. funny. Parlez-vous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Jerry's super, super rude to her cause she, you know, he's, he's like, look, I'm, I'm from, I think he says he's from Jersey. Yeah. And uh and so she talks to him and tries to like critique his work and he cuts her off and he's kind of rude to her and he basically tells her to get lost. Yeah, that's he mean. He doesn't want her input. And uh and so the girl walks off and then Milo walks up. Yeah, Milo. Milo. Um she's a woman uh about Jerry's age. I feel like she's uh, you know, middle-aged. Yeah, I I I'd, I'd put her at early 40s. Maybe. Sure. And so probably Gene Kelly was too. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, 
she introduced herself as Milo, as in Venus Duh. Yeah. I actually accidentally wrote her name down as Venus Duh yeah. at first, and I'm like, wait, that can't be your name. No. So she loves two of his paintings. She likes all of his artwork, but she loves two of his paintings, and she, she yeah. offers to buy them. Ooh, Was that your phone? My phone. Oops. Ooh, gotta put that on silent. It sang to us. Yeah. Uh, Jerry's super surprised when she offers to buy the artwork because he's never really sold any before and so she asks him how much and he has no idea what to reply to her so she offers fifteen thousand francs wow which is like 50 bucks a piece hey but hey, for your first sale yeah and i think at that time period i think 50 bucks you know post world war ii yeah that goes a long way yeah oh yeah jerry was a he was a, he was in the military and that's how he wound up in paris right yeah did did, did we mention which branch i don't remember I almost think it was Navy. But yeah, I really don't remember. That could be, yeah. Uh, Maybe Army. Maybe Marines. I forget. <laughs> so she goes to pay him, and she doesn't have the money in her oh, wallet. Oh, Milo! And uh, she says that Jerry could go back with her to, the, to her hotel so she can pay him. And he, you know, he agrees. And so he starts to pack up his paintings, and he turns around, and a limo pulls up to pick them up. So oh, yeah. obviously Milo has money. I would say so. So at the hotel, she pays him, and they discuss sort of where to hang the the paintings in the hotel room, which I thought was interesting. So Milo basically lives in this hotel room in Paris. Yeah. She, she talks about how she's from America, and she has a place in America, but um, but she spends most of her time here. So the fact that she can hang up paintings means she really does. Oh, yeah. You know, she can put holes in the wall. She really does live there. She's not concerned about that security deposit. No. So she pays him, um, and... Uh, she invites Jerry to a party. She says, what are you doing tonight? Why don't you come back? Um, that There's one extra girl, and she could use another guy. So, oh. so he agrees. He's a little reluctant, but he agrees. So uh, Jerry is uh, taken back home in the limo, and everybody sees him coming back in this limo, this convertible limo, and everybody's Fancy. waving. And the, the kids are running next to it and stuff, and everybody's really excited, and... Um, he he gets out and before he goes in, you know the kids all sort of accost him because he gives out American bubble gum and yeah. he doesn't have any on him. But he gives them an English lesson instead. Oh, is this when they sing? Uh, who could ask for anything more? Yeah. So this was. Oh, what? I'm just saying that might have been one of the most annoying. Oh, it was my favorite scenes scene. I've ever seen with the kids yeah. screaming. It was one of my favorite. Oh scenes. man, it yeah. drove me nuts. No, I liked it. Oh, that's great to have such a like a varied opinion on it. I think I think uh, Gene Kelly handled it beautifully, but those kids they could have they could have gotten rid of half of those kids <laughs> and maybe told them all to tone it down a little. I liked the I liked conceptually how they changed the song. Okay, I, I think that's what drew me into it was having the interaction with the kids and having like doing that as an English lesson. And I think, you know... That part's fine. You know... But let's tone down those kids. Yeah, well, the the song had just been done in a movie just a couple years prior with... Oh, really? Um, I think maybe Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney did it in a, in a movie a few years prior. So it was not like this was an unseen song in a film. And it's, yeah. it's a Gershwin song, so people knew it. So the fact that they found kind of a a unique way to present it and it sort of fit with the movie. Yeah. And I really like the dance number in it. I really, sure. I, I, thought, I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, he does all these different, um, different dance, like sort of tap styles and stuff in the, yeah. in the movie, including the Charleston. And, and, uh, and he tolerates those children. He tolerates the children. Screaming in his face so, every 10 seconds. So he teaches the kids the word I got. 
And right. he points to them, and the kid goes, I got, and he goes, rhythm. You you toned it down just now, thankfully. Those yeah, kids were yeah. screaming it. Yeah, they're learning a word. And, you know, like, I wanted Oompa Loompas to show up and just take some of them away <laughs> and drown um, them in a chocolate river. So, anyways, I thought it was a really fun scene to watch. You hated it. But that's, okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's what makes the world go around. And that's, that's you know... It's great because we don't have a lot of like really different opinions. Like that's true. Like generally, we can kind of see things the the other, you know, the other person's way. Yeah, um, really easily. Uh, so it's it's kind of nice to have a, a difference mean, of opinion on the show. I can see it your way. Oddly enough, shortly after this scene, in my notes, I literally just wrote, "I have no use for this kind of movie." <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how uh, how tainted I was by that uh, by no. those kids and that musical number. So. Later in the evening, Jerry shows up at Milo's hotel, and he finds that finds out that the party is just him and Milo. Oh yeah, and he gets kind of huffy. It was a lot like uh, Sunset Boulevard. It was, it was, it was a lot point. of Sunset Boulevard kind of ish things. Mm. So he gets all huffy, and he throws the money down the table and starts to grab his paintings. He tell her, tells her he doesn't need the money this bad, and that she needs companionship to find it somewhere else. He doesn't have to sell himself. Yeah, and she's no gigolo. Yeah, and she explains to him that. He, she knew he wouldn't come any other way. And he sort of admits that and that she just wanted to get to know him better and sort of become his, his benefactor, his patron. Oh yeah. And so she wants to help him get set up for galleries and uh, make his work known. And that kind of wins him over. And so he offers to take her out to a night, a nightclub, a restaurant. They go to listen to some jazz. They do. Now they, they thought about, getting food at the restaurant at the hotel but they knew that was gonna be expensive so she knew she knows this place that's not very expensive that he can take her all right so they get there and it is bustling oh yeah a friend of um so they they sit down and they have some conversation and chit chat and get to know each other um and a uh a friend of milo's is there and pulls them over gets them and pulls them over to another table with some other artists and uh, when they go to sit down, that's when Jerry sees Lisa oh, for the first time. And he can't Lisa. take his eyes off her. Now, if you remember, um, Henri told Adam, but Jerry wasn't there for the conversation about Lisa. So he right. has no idea who she is. Right. So he sees her, and he just starts staring at her. Oh, yeah. He's a creep. He's creeping big time. And she is clearly uncomfortable by the fact that he's staring at her. Yeah. Um. And Milo notices this, and she starts to get a little upset. Oh, yeah. Sounds like she wants more than to be his patron. I'll say. So, a dance number comes on, and every, you know, people get up to dance. Um, Milo's friend pulls her up to the dance floor. Yeah. And Jerry stays behind, and then he decides he wants to dance with Lisa, so he sort of tricks her into dancing with him by pretending he knows who she is. Someone, someone right. there at the restaurant told her, told him her name, and... I forget, is she already dancing with somebody and he cuts no, in on it? No, oh, okay. he, picks, he gets her up from the table with the people that she's visiting with. Oh, she's, yes. she's extremely annoyed by it. Mm-hmm. So uh, Milo dances with her friend, and that's when we learn that she's done this artist benefactor thing before Ooh. in the hopes of finding love. I'm listening. So on the car ride home, Jerry's like on cloud nine because he met Lisa, and he's completely oblivious to Milo being upset. Until, of course, she tells him that he's being rude. Oh, yeah. And that he didn't care about her feelings. Whoa, boy. Whoa, boy, indeed. She, she throws a fit. And so he has has the car pull over and he gets out and walks home. They're basically having their first lover's spat and it's only been like a day or two. And they're not lovers. Right. So the next day, Jerry calls Lisa at her work. 
and she is super annoyed by this and tells him to buzz off. So uh, he, how you doing there? He's he's intently looking at his notes. I'm trying. I'm 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 reading with my notes to see if uh see, if I don't want to skipped over anything. Yeah, I don't want to skip over something that you maybe made made a note of. So just stop me when you uh, when you got something, pal. No, I think I think uh, I think we're both up to speed here. So he sits down at the cafe, and uh, after getting off the phone with Lisa, and Milo shows up. He sees that the limo is there, and then all of a sudden Milo sits down next to him. Mm-hmm. And she tells him that she's going to show his art to critics and some gallery curators. And so he's, like, super excited by this. Sure. Like, it's still on, even though she was upset with me. So on Cloud9, Jerry goes to visit Lisa at her work, which is like a perfumery. Yeah. How, again, did he? Did she mention it when they danced, or did he just... You know, I forget how he found her there, but I in think my room, someone told her when they told told him about her when he when okay they said his, her name. Yeah, because my note is Jerry stalks Lisa at the perfume. I mean, shop. he kind of does. So he he goes there and follows her around, and she's helping this middle aged American woman uh, buy a perfume that hopefully her husband will like. Yeah, in America, and so he helps her sell to the woman and convinces her which one to get, and that slowly kind of starts to wear down. Lisa's wear uh, down uh, a little bit <laughs> and then she still is like no and you know you're you're serious and kind of creepy and too aggressive and he's like no i can be i can let loose and be fun and he like pretends to like drink some of the perfume and like, yeah he's silly and so she laughs and she agrees to meet up with him after a date that she has that night of course we know that that's henri that she's oh dating. no dear sweet henri uh, i want to say right now i do not love how he courts this woman how Jerry does? Yeah, I, I don't like how aggressive he is. And even Jerry admits that it's aggressive. Um, yeah. It, it's bothersome to me. It, it feels uh, more than just, like, chauvinistic to me. It feels sure. very caveman-y to me. Yeah. But there was a lot of that going around back then. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, fortunately, we are raised in a more enlightened time. Yeah. Back then, I was just watching something else recently where... Um, you know, a guy, a younger guy was talking to his girlfriend's grandma, and she said, like... Back in those days, a guy in your neighborhood just came by and said, you're beautiful and I love you. And then eventually you got married to him. <laughs> it's just, that's sort of what this is. Yeah. So Jerry goes home and he sings a song with Adam because, of course, he's in love already. And he's he's singing about being in love and Adam's sort of uh, annoyed by that, I think. Oh, yeah. Adam doesn't really have time for for that kind of love. He does have love, but not that kind. So He seems to mostly just want to play his piano yeah very well yes um is this when he has his, his no, dream that's, a little, that's a little later okay so um adam calls Henri a little bit later um and it's dinner time and of course adam's hungry because he's also a starving artist and he wants to come over but Henri is with lisa so he says no yeah that makes um, sense Henri tells adam that he has a performance that night and he should meet him there and uh and then lisa's like oh you have a performance performance later tonight knowing that she's supposed to be there right for that that kind of thing and of course Henri wants her to be there so that's an issue for her meeting with jerry so um regardless she goes to meet jerry at a cafe that night after after dinner with she's a cheater and they go and sit down and people kind of start looking at her and she gets really uncomfortable and so she they get up and they leave and that makes sense jerry's like let's just let's just go on a walk they hold hands uh, let's walk along the river. Yeah, and they eat some candy bars, like that ABBA song. And yeah, and they hang out and they talk and they definitely fall for each other. Ooh, do they? So I want to talk about the, the filming location. We talked a little bit about how it was not filmed in Paris, right? 
Um, but it does have a pretty authentic look to it. Um, and it's quite a massive undertaking. If this is in Paris, they built a Paris set. Yeah. Now they, they shoot, um, they have this conversation on the bank of the Seine. Yeah. Or the Seine, the Seine, the Seine, sure. something like that. Um, and that's also kind of amazing that they built this bridge and the Seine, um, and Notre Dame's in the background. That right. They built all this stuff to, you know, for this movie. They shot the movie um, on the MGM backlot. Whoa. And uh, they shot second unit stuff actually in Paris. So uh, all that stuff at the very beginning where you see, like, the Eiffel Tower and the Arc de Triomphe and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, they shot that. And then they also shot some stuff that they used for rear projection a little bit later in the film. That makes a lot of sense. Um, because Gene Kelly wanted to be there. He, he wanted to shoot this in Paris. And they were like, no. Well, sure. So... Um, which is great because it gave him the budget for this big dance number at the end of the movie, which again will <laughs> with like a thousand dancers in it. Yeah, I thought I thought the bridge set was in particular was especially amazing. Yeah, um, yeah, it looked. I mean, I've never been to Paris, but I've seen other things that were actually shot around those yeah. bridges, and it looked totally legit. Yeah, they had um they had this cameraman named Ray June. Um, he's sort of uncredited as a cinematographer for this. All right, um, he's a cinematographer and like. 150 other things but um, way to go ray yeah so he came in he worked like tirelessly on this especially this set and um so you can see like sort of how he lit notre dame in the background cool um, and like parts of it and parts of it he didn't um lights reflecting off the water and they actually had to cheat some of that stuff because the um the way the angle that the camera was at for where they were yeah along the riverbank um, they couldn't get the lights to reflect off the water, so they built sp- these special lighting rigs to oh go boy. under the water. So Whoa. the lights that you see reflecting on the water are actually in the water. Wow. Yeah. and uh, That's dangerous. Yeah, they wanted the idea was to make it look like a real moving river. Yeah. And uh, the depth of the river was only a few inches. Cool. But it looked great. I mean, it looks like the real deal. It's got real movement and stuff to it. So it's, It is impressive. Yeah. So Impressive. Yeah, so they're they're having this like little little moment, and then Jerry sings the song called "My Love Is Here to Stay," Aww. which is a song um, written in like I don't know, I think it was like 1938 or something. So All right. it's an older song. It was very obscure at the time that they made this movie, but it had been around for a while. So when the movie, um, it was actually written for a different movie that came out in 1938. Oh so, yeah, yeah. Which movie do we know? Oh, off the top of my head, I don't. Oh, man. man. I'm sorry. I didn't put that in my notes. It was called Hitler's A-Coming. It was not. That's not what it was called. Um, but the, the point is, people didn't really know about the movie. Um, it was a small film, and nobody really knew about the song. It was like very obscure. After this came out, yeah, the song became very popular. And this is a song that I... As it should. I've heard. I mean, uh, I, I'm a big fan of the Harry Connick Jr. version. Oh, yeah? Um, he sings, sing a little of it for nope, me now. I'm not going to, but he does sing it in the movie um, When Harry Met Sally. It's on that soundtrack. Oh. So, um, but this is, this, this, him singing to her is, I think, the moment he really wins over Lisa. Yeah. Um, he sings and they dance together. And, of course, they're both these beautiful dancers. Um, so they're singing and dancing on the banks of the Seine. Mm. And... Of course, in the dance they kiss. I thought it was kind of a really interesting choreographed kiss. Ooh, yeah, uh, dance move. Um, and then a few minutes later, Lisa realizes that it's like super late. It's like eleven something, and uh, 
so she like decides she has to rush off but she's got to get to Henri's yeah stairway to paradise performance yes so i'm glad you brought that up because she starts to go up the stairs and he stops her and he's like we have to see each other again she's like yes we do and she goes and she kisses him on the stairway he kisses her on the stairway and then we go into a performance of stairway to paradise right which i think is really really interesting um that also had about a thousand dancers in it yeah so she so she runs up the stairs back to her comfort back to her home back to her future oh yeah and uh, yeah and then with Henri. yeah and i thought this set was really cool too um so it's like this big like concert hall set and it's like really brightly pink yeah and they have these light up stairs that when he starts stepping up and moving up the stairs they light up and i had these women posing as statues holding right. candelabras and i was um really for some reason kind of drawn to the candelabras yeah um, I I know I kind of joked when the curtain rose up next to the candelabras like oh that's not safe but the candelabras were of course electric thankfully but I was I was intrigued by the candelabras because they were stationary like they were they were actually part of a statue and the women were real people so all they it looked like they were holding the candelabras yeah really they were just holding on and resting their arms that I, sounds like the more fun way to do yeah, it let me tell you yeah it looked really I I, I don't know I was intrigued by that and I thought it was kind of cool but um, so anyways. He does this really cool performance. He starts to sing in French, and then he sees his American friend, and he addresses that yeah. in the audience, and then he sings in English for his American friend. And that's important because um, after the performance, Lisa, we see Lisa running up the street, and she's coming to the back entrance where Henri is coming out with his American friend, and the American friend wants to bring him to the U.S. Ooh. So... Um, but I think more importantly, Henri has no idea that Lisa wasn't there. Right. Even when she was like going to say apologize, he kind of cuts her off, and um, he basically says, "Hey, you know what? We should get to we should get married and move to America." Ooh boy! And she's like, "All right." Yikes! So the next day, it's very clear that Jerry is lovesick. Mm-hmm. It's uh. It's kind of a nuisance that he's going to have to go meet with his benefactor who's going to make his career because he just wants to sit there and think about Lisa right. all day. And because he knows his benefactor is trying to get him to fall in love with her right. herself. Right. Milo. Milo. Which, you know, God bless her. She's a sweet gal. But she's clearly, you know, she's using her money yeah. to influence you know, this, this guy. So the limo shows up and he, he leaves Adam there. And Adam like kind of lays back on like a little city type thing couch something yeah and uh and this is where we get to see adam's dream oh yeah love and what adam loves is music right and himself kind of himself uh he appears as the piano player in his dream yep and then also as a few of the other uh instrumentalists the violinists and the timpani and then a few of the audience members and the uh, conductor and the conductor that's right yeah and he, he plays this really like kind of beautiful piece that's accompanied by himself on the orchestra. Yeah, uh, they use a lot of like trick photography in that, and uh, you know, seven of him playing the violin. Right, so. that was funny. Yeah, and I like how how much he's cheering himself on as the as the audience member. So right, he loves music. That guy, Milo takes Jerry to some apartments and shows him a door with his name on it. <gasps> that's right, Mulligan. 
They go in and find a much larger space than his apartment. Oh, yes. And it's full of, like, new canvases and paint equipment. And, of course, Jerry's, like, super resistant. He's uncomfortable with the whole money thing, especially because he knows he doesn't have feelings for this woman. Yeah. And he feels like she's doing it because she wants his hot body. Whoa. So she goes on to tell him that she's arranged this gallery show for him, and uh, it's in three weeks. (gasps) So he's got to get to painting. That's so soon. And he get you know, he puts up Wait, a Wait, is it three weeks or three months? I think it's three weeks. I thought for sure she had said did months. Write, did you write months? Maybe it was months. I thought it was weeks, but it could be months. I thought it was months. Oh, three boy. somethings. Right. So he eventually comes around to the idea and he does give in. And that leads us to this Paris painting montage, which is where they use the rear projection of the mm-hmm. stuff that they shot. Um, Jerry's just running all around the city painting. Every beautiful thing you can see. But most importantly, from the from a filmmaking aspect, Uh-oh. they set something up in the scene that you have no idea that they're setting up. And I'm going to address it when it comes up a little bit later. I know you got that look on your face and you're like, what's going on? I'm trying it's, to remember. It's a, very, it's a very, very subtle thing that you would have to really be in the know to get. Huh. So, somebody would have to tell you, which I'm going to do. Please do. Now. So, Jerry, now I'm going to do it. Oh, Jerry eventually meets up with Lisa, um, but he's got his paintings with him, and so he's got to drop his stuff off at his real apartment. Mm-hmm. And they decide to take a cab there, and they pull up to the cafe, and she knows that Adam and Henri live slash visit there. So she refuses to get out. Ooh. And presumably she knows Adam. I mean, if Adam's such a good friend of Henri's, she knows Adam. Right. Um, and Adam's sitting in the cafe, and she's like, I'm not getting out of the, out of the cab. So... Um, Jerry's like, okay, I'm gonna go put this stuff out, up, and I'll be right back. And uh, Lisa takes off in the cab, leaving Jerry there alone. That's right. And so he sits down. Well, I think because she does indeed spot Adam. She in sees the, Adam. Yeah. There. Yep. So she's just like, Sacre bleu, get me out of here. <laughs> so uh, she has a kid bring a note to to Jerry saying, "Meet me in our spot." Ah. Jerry's sitting there with Adam, um, having some coffee, and well, Adam's having coffee, and uh, he starts discussing this girl that he's in love with, and he tells Adam her name, and Adam spits out his spill. He spills his coffee as we yeah, so all over his shirt. Yep, and so then Adam orders a bourbon, and that's when Henri shows up. Oh boy! And Henri tells them he's gonna get married. To his girl, and oh, Adam spills his bourbon on himself. So Jerry fills Henri in that he's in love, but the girl is holding back. Now, of course, we know that's because she's engaged to Henri. Yep. So Henri unknowingly gives Jerry advice on how to get the girl. Oh my gosh! During this whole conversation, Adam's kind of like shaking and he's distraught over about what's sort of about to blow up in front of him. He knows that any second it's gonna, it's gonna, the truth will come out. Yeah. So he, like, spills his drinks. He, he absentmindedly takes other people's drinks. He ruins his cigarettes multiple times. Darn it. He lights and smokes two inadvertently. He kind of contorts another. He smokes a kind of a broken cigarette by the yeah. end. <laughs> Henri, Poor Adam. Henri tells Jerry to just ask for her hand in marriage and that you only find the right woman once. Mm. So which one of these guys has found the right woman is the question. Oh boy. Adam goes catatonic as these two men start singing a song about the woman they love. Yeah. I think they sing Wonderful, right? It's Wonderful. That sounds correct. It's Wonderful. All right. So 
after that scene, there's it culminates to them just belting out the last notes out on the city streets. This really kind of big, wide crane shot of the of the Parisian street. So Jerry rushes to Lisa and tells her that he's in love with her. Oh boy! And then she tells him that she's engaged to Henri, and she tells uh, him his name. Why, Lisa? So cr- she's tearing <laughs> she's me apart, tearing Lisa. Yeah. Yep. Crushed. Mm-hmm. Jerry leaves and decides, I'm going to rebound with Milo. And rebound he does. Poor Milo. Yeah. I feel bad for Milo in this film. So he tells her, uh, so he goes to see Milo, and he's like, oh, you're beautiful. Does anyone ever tell you that? And, you know, not often enough, that kind of thing. And he tells her he's going to take her to a costume ball, ball full of batshit insane art students. Now, he doesn't say that, <laughs> but that's where he does. He's, you know, there's this big... Um, annual ball and I'm going to take you to as full art students they get there and people are jumping off of balconies into the crowd um, there's people everywhere yeah everywhere stupid weird costumes they're all wearing black and white costumes which is also really important they're all going cuckoo for cocoa puffs they are they are nuts um, Adam's there playing the piano Milo gets picked up by a random person and dumped into his lap <laughs> um, now Lisa and Henri are also there, but they don't see them right away. And this one woman keeps jumping off the freaking balcony. Same woman over and over again. Yeah, and she's just getting caught by a friend, right? Like there's just random some... people. One, oh. time, one time it's Jerry. Oh yeah, that's true. It's, it's that's a bad idea. It's terrible. It's, it's, it's art students. Don't do that. If you're gonna jump off of a high place, make sure you're landing in water. Yep. So Adam and Milo sort of meet surreptitiously, and they discuss jerry without exchanging info about who they are but they both know jerry and it's implied that maybe milo has eyes on adam sort of the way she's talking to him and sort of sweet talking him a little bit um maybe he's going to be her next project Mm. and adam really kind of puts an end to that i think he's onto her and he tells her that about how he's worried about jerry because of his sponsor yeah and she's like why and he says she's got more nerve than money Oh, which she doesn't really like. And she tells him that she is Jerry's sponsor. And Adam says, I know. Yeah. And walks away, leaves her, leaves her behind. Jerry and Milo run into Henri and Lisa and Jerry and Lisa pretend not to know each other. They're like, Oh, how did you? Nice to meet you. Uh, once the couples go their separate way though, Henri realizes there's something wrong with Lisa. Like they're mm-hmm. trying to dance and she's just super distracted and sad. Meanwhile, Jerry confesses to Milo. He pulls her off to the side and he says, look, I'm not happy. Go lucky tonight. I've been lying. I'm, you know, I'm heartbroken. Yeah. And that's when Milo realizes it's Lisa. From the jazz club. And Jerry kind of leaves her there and Milo is left standing there in tears. Very sad for her. Sad for everybody at this point. And I think they wanted Milo to like kind of seem a little more schemy, a little bit more um, like man eatery. And I think she ends up coming across. Um, They actually filmed a a scene at the end of the film with Milo. Oh yeah. um, Where I think Jerry apologizes to her or something. Um, I haven't seen the deleted scene. I don't know if it's actually on the disc or anything, but, Hmm. um, but apparently they felt that, it made Jerry look bad. Oh, um, at the end of the film, and they didn't want to do that, so they huh. they cut that scene. And and um, Nina 
Foch, who played Milo, yeah. she had said that besides that, like they called her and said, look, we had to cut this. But besides, and which she thought was sad because she had delivered sort of an impromptu moment in there that everybody loved. Yeah. But she said, beside the fact that it made Jerry look bad, the movie was over at that point. Like, yeah. They had resolved it. So, like, when your movie's over, why add another scene? So I thought that was very... Uh, Touche. Astute thing for an actor to say. Usually, a lot of times, actors will be like, no, don't cut my scene. Right. So, um, Jerry's sad as well. He goes out on a balcony to be by himself, and he starts sketching, and he quickly sketches this um, plaza area with the Arc de Triomphe, Mm -hmm. that big monolith thing. I don't know what that's called. The big monolith thing. Yeah, there's like a little pointy, it looks kind of like the Washington Monument. Oh, an obelisk, like like an Illuminati obelisk. Yeah, yeah, some type of obelisk. I forget what the one's called there. Continue. Lisa shows up, and she tells him that she loves him. (gasps) And it's terrible to see uh, him this way when he should really have his arms around her. Oh, boy. Jerry tears the sketch in half and tells her that he's painted all this, like, you know, amazing and beautiful stuff. And, Par- you know, Paris is amazing. Mm-hmm. But the more beautiful it is, the more it's going to hurt being without her. And they embrace and, in a hug. And then she runs off. And then the camera moves back, and we see that Henri was there off to the side the whole time. He heard the whole thing. And the, the tour... and Henri kills Jerry. No, that's not what happens. No? Nope. I thought for sure he comes out and he stabs Jerry with a love knife. A love knife, no. Uh, <laughs> so the torn drawing gets blown away in the wind, and Lisa and Henri get in a cab to leave. Oh, darn it. And in the cab, as it's driving away, we see Henri can see that lisa is hurting so he knows the truth and he knows she's in emotional deep emotional pain yeah then we get finally get jerry's dream montage as the wind blows the pieces of the torn sketch back together (gasps) and we get to see what jerry believes life will be like if he could just be with lisa yeah so the painting montage earlier in the film where they're doing the rear projection and he's painting all these different things in paris right they set up the color palette for this oh. finale of the of the film. So every time you see, it cuts to a different moment of him painting very subtly, whether it's a child's toy or a dress or um, an awning or the yellow of a building, um, they're all pieces of this color palette they're going to use for this massive sequence at the end. Of massive it. is an understatement. And and the they also introduce the flower in that montage which is really like central to this this dance number ah yes um because he paints the portrait of lisa and he gives her the flower to hold right so the last 17 minutes of this movie is a ballet number is it only 17 it's only 17 minutes felt like 170 no and it felt like 20 it's long but you know it's it's a ballet it definitely feels like you know an under quite the undertaking so, and it starts inside Jerry's sketch. And sort right. of, it's sort of, I think, implied that all the locations are sketches of Jerry's. Hmm. They're all done in the same style. Um, yeah. You know, really simple. And, it, you know, so it starts black and white. And this is where, you know, you mentioned that the outfits inside the um, party were all black and white. Right. And that's really important because the the scene starts black and white. I mean, Jerry's kind of faint, but yeah. he's in color. And the rose is in color. But the drawing is black and white, and when he goes and he picks up the rose in this dream sequence, the the background, the, the art, gets splashed with all this color. Right. And um, I think that the lead-up to that, this whole scene all in black and white, was 
designed to make that sort of like a you know a real moment that where you're like inundated with color all yeah of a sudden, you know? i can dig that so this sequence um it's, it takes place in like you know various sketches or various locations in paris it took a month to film wow really and it took them to build to build the sets six weeks Jiminy, Jiminy. 30 painters working around the clock. And cost half a million dollars. Just for the 17-minute dance number. Just for their 17-minute dance Holy shnikes. So, uh, a a $500,000 17-minute set. Wow. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a massive undertaking. There's giant fountains that look kind of like they're frozen because they're they're drawn. Yeah. Right? Um, so they're frozen in time. Uh there's this massive cast. So many dancers. A huge set. So much costuming. Um, so many, so so many wild uh, right. wardrobe choices. There's this really intense lighting sure. scheme that they've got going on, um, and then uh, this elusive Lisa traveling from location to location. That he's trying to get this girl. Right. She just keeps popping up in the various little dance companies, and yep. Driving Jerry Mulligan crazy. So he's like in Parisian squares. He's on bridges. There's flower merchants. He goes to the zoological garden. Um, there's some steam. There's a steamy fountain sequence that's just the two of them. Oh yeah. They're in the middle of a big giant fountain. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> the opera house, uh, Moulin Rouge. Yeah. And then. Oh yeah, they bump into Toulouse Lautrec at one point. They do. And um, then they go into kind of a weird uh, Bob Fosse kind of dance. Well, Jerry do. does. Yep. And he's got no bulge on the front of his pants. That really tripped me up. <laughs> I didn't like his hat in that scene. It was weird. I don't um, remember his hat. I was too busy looking at that lack of bulge. I was see, okay. Um, and then they go back to the original sketch. Um, yes. All the locations all have different... Um, they're all inspired by different artists, French Oh, that's cool. Artists. So there's, you know, Van Gogh and Manet and various... Uh, the Toulouse-Lautrec and, and various others, so... And Mulligan. And Mulligan. And Mulligan. It's true. The flower um, from the portrait that he picks up at the beginning of the sequence kind of shows up, and it's kind of almost as elusive as Lisa. Like, she'll either have it. Like, he'll find it. She'll either have it or he'll pull it out of the flower cart. It's like the only oh. red flower and a bunch of white ones. And right. It's sort of representative of, of this thing that he he didn't think he wanted or needed, and now he's just trying to hold on to. Yeah. Um, and he ends up back in the original sketch without the girl. No! Um, and only the flower. <gasps> Why? So he comes out of his daydream back at the at the party, and he starts to go back in, and then he hears the cab return. <gasps> and, he, and he turns around, and Henri kisses Lisa goodbye, and she and Jerry run down and up the steps. Oh, yeah. To paradise. To paradise. And into each other's With arms. a new step every day. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie. Wow. They, the they made the it. Girl. Um, now, we talked about that there's a ballet for seven, at 17 minutes. The last 20 minutes, 20, 20 and a half minutes of the film, there's no dialogue. That's true. So, it's really, it's almost like 20 minute ballet. But, <clears throat> so, that is An American in Paris. So, you didn't love this film. I'm not crazy about it. Like I said, I can I can see the merit. I didn't have a bad time watching it. But I'd, yeah, I just have no reason to watch it again. I'd watch it again if somebody had never seen it and they wanted to watch it. All right. If somebody was like, oh, I really want to see this. And, you know, I, I would I would gladly show it to someone. But uh, 
I've, I've, we we watched it and I watched it again. So that's um, dedication. I've seen Holmes. it twice now, so I'm, I'm good for a while in this film. But uh, I wish they had shown us exactly what Lisa said to Henri to get him to agree to turning the cab around and letting her go forever. I don't think she had to say anything. You don't think so? I don't think so. There's um. There's a reference earlier in the film that she makes about when she tells uh, Jerry that yeah. she's engaged to Henri. And she says, he took me in after during the war. Um, oh, that's right. Her, her parents were killed. He's essentially her foster father. She ra- oh, he that's her. right. And she says, I owe him everything. And I and I loved him at the time. Like yeah. I, I fell in love. Like as a, as a 14-year-old, she fell in love with this, this older man who like took her in and saved her life. Inappropriate. Yeah, but I get that part of it, right? And she says he eventually grew to love me, like implying that there was nothing when she was a child, but because she loved him and she doted on him, that eventually he he grew to love her. Um, sure, but that's important, I think, into letting her go because yeah. he's only ever wanted good, you know, something good for her. True. And I don't think I don't think you know he may have fallen for her, but that wasn't necessarily what she was destined for and i think you need that maybe that's it i'm not sure that look the look that he gives her in the cab when she's like crying and looking out the window she's turned away from him yeah he has this really pained sorrowful look on his face like he knows what he has to do Mm. i'm not sure she says anything to him Henri is a very enlightened guy yeah he and he seems like a nice guy possibly the most enlightened of the the trio of these men huh well to Henri. to Henri. uh so uh um, this is a movie that's really, really clearly about celebrating art and the fact that Paris has given us so much. Sure. Um, so just to kind of just kind of address it back yeah. to the thing we talked about at the very beginning. And then two days after we watched it, yeah, terrible things happened. Kablooey. And and uh, so you know, again, I think this movie was timed really well for for us having just like watched the celebration of art and what Paris gives to the to the world. I can so. agree with that. So c- tell me about your coffee countdown for this. Zero minutes, baby. Zero I minutes. didn't doze off once. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I mean, it's certainly an easy movie to pay attention to. It's beautifully shot. Yeah. There are beautiful women. <laughs> it's funny enough. That it's entertaining enough. You know. Um, I don't exactly remember how much coffee or sleep I was on at the time. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, coffee countdown. Didn't yeah. doze off once, yeah, I'm happy some, to say. Some tea, I remember that. I, don't I did some, have some rice tea. I didn't see any coffee. I think I had a cup of coffee maybe like uh, within the hour before I came over, something like that. Yeah. But I really don't remember. You know, most times I, I'm like, okay, I'm on this much sleep and this much coffee, and here we go. This time, didn't make note of it. Stayed awake the whole time. Interesting. It is interesting because then I stayed awake through the next movie too. So yeah. I'll, I'll yeah, did, spoil that for you. Zero back. minutes, yeah. Zero right. minutes on the next movie, which was... A shingleman. Yeah. Well, let's let, let me let's do something new. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this thing real quick. What is it? So our friends over at Acid Ink Selections have Acid Ink Selections. Yep. They have a great wine uh, suggestion for us, so you can have a perfect Paris inspired movie night. Oh. So they say American entrepreneur first in film then wine. Mark Tarlov is an American not in Paris but just outside of Paris in Burgundy mm. and Oregon. Directing some of the most exciting projects, focusing on Pinot Noir and Gamay. Mm-hmm. This episode's wine is Maison L'Envoyé Morgan Côte du Pie, 2012. Um, so Beaujolais 
once known only as a light fruity wine, mm. has come of age and in serious regions like Morgon produce wines um, of deep dark fruits, but that are amazingly fresh and light on their feet, a la Jean Kelly. Also. Best part is you can find truly great quality for less than $25. Nice. That's a heck of a lot less than the $500,000 ballet finale of today's movie. <laughs> and yet especially fitting for that scene. Did they write that? They wrote that. That's great. Yeah, so thank you very much for the wine suggestion. Everybody go check out that wine. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll make a note of it in the description of the podcast as well, so that way you can see how it's spelled and whatnot. Um, now I really want to drink a lot of wine. Yeah, let's, just, let's get you drunk. I'm uh, I'm for it. I don't have to be anywhere important tomorrow. Great. Get me drunk. Let's do it. All right. So thank you again to our friends at Acid Ink Selections. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to continue at, with that as a theme um, throughout our podcast from now on. We're going wine to have Wine recommendations. Wine recommendations. So, um enjoy everyone thank you very much so you want to talk about single man sure man i got a lot of notes man i've got a uh, two pages of notes myself great a single man oh boy this movie's uh this movie's pretty heavy yeah so it's a heavy heavy movie so i have a really detailed description of what happened in my notes so i'm All gonna right. let you talk yeah and, and I'll you just know interject chime in yeah. if you think i'm missing anything sure well the movie opens with a uh, very snowy road and there's definitely a car accident. There's a car flipped upside down. I want to correct you real quick. Oh, no. The movie opens with the body in the water. Yes. Yes. George. George's body. We don't know it's George for sure. We just see a naked man underwater. The camera's even deeper under the water. Mm. There's a very golden glow under there. And this naked body is sort of sinking. And it's... Uh, sinking is a good observation. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty, I'll say, what's the word I'm looking for? Upsetting? Upsetting. Not quite morose. I was about to say morbid, but I feel like it's it's morose. Anxiety-filled, I feel like, too. I think the idea of drowning is... Yeah, because sweet George, he's having a hard time. So, from the drowning to now, a man lying dead under a turned-over car out in the snow. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, there's some blood. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a poor little dead dog next to him, mm-hmm. and George, played by Colin Firth, comes walking in, lays down next to the dying man, uh, played by uh, Matthew Good. Matthew Good. And he kisses him, and then in that kiss, George wakes up, and he's alone in his bed. And it's pretty clear that these were two men who were in love, and this, this car accident indeed killed Jim. George was not there when it happened, but he's having these horrifying dreams where he is kissing Jim goodbye as Jim lays dying on the frozen roads in Colorado after a car accident. And I actually think I, I actually think Jim's long dead in that sequence. His eyes are like real milky and stuff. Um, I don't know that I noticed that. I uh, Milky eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think maybe it's... Um, and again, going back to anxiety, this this idea that he didn't get to say goodbye, and we'll address that in a flashback a little bit later about not getting to say goodbye. Oh sure. Um, but I did have like an interesting filmmaking note. On Let that. me hear it. They shot that scene in the desert. Really? Yeah. They um, they shot 
there was the first day shooting apparently and right. they shot a scene that comes up later in the film where George and Jim are sort of sunning themselves on some rocks I remember that the infamous black and white photo that uh, we see a little bit later <laughs> again um, no bulge in that photo <laughs> um, and so they shot that first the, the the sunning themselves in the desert first and then they covered the desert uh, ground with the snow and brought in the car and there you go sounds like a good use of a day interesting use of a desert and uh jim didn't have to lay there in actual cold snow the whole time i'm assuming right so that part's nice and the poor dog that dog is a uh was a cast it was oh a cast of tom ford's real dog oh the 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 dead dog cast shows up again later in the film i'll point that out oh no um so george is the one who's been having this dream about kissing his his boyfriend goodbye Mm mm-hmm and uh, he wakes up, and I believe the line is, waking up begins with saying, am and now. Is and, that correct? I think it's and now. Like, and now I am awake. Like, oh. And now we begin. I thought he said am and now. But maybe it is and and now. Yeah, because it's the beginning of, of the movie. It's also the beginning of the book, the first line of the book. Oh, okay. So you've read the book, have you? I have not read the book. I just, oh, neither have I. I. Know Don't that. feel bad. I'm not going to be mad. Fun tidbit. Um, I'll be honest with you. Right after that, I wrote a note that says, already trying too hard to be profound. Oh, interesting. And I felt that a couple other times during the movie. Just a few times. But, you know, um, I felt that way the first time. Again, watched this movie twice. Um, felt better about it the second time. And okay. I, I sort of understood it, I think, a, a little bit better. There's a, it's Man, there's a lot of... You what know, is going on out there? Tra- big truck driving by. That, was a that lot of, truck was our subtext just now. Yeah, a lot of subtext in the movie. So so he woke, wakes up, and what, what happens next? Uh, well, he starts going about his day. Can I, can, I, um, yeah. can I point out something that I think is important to that last scene in the film? Of course. Um, so he, when he wakes up, he moves his hand and finds that he has a pen that has leaked all over the sheets. That's right. It's like this black ink is all over the sheets and is left a stain there. And I think symbolically it's, it's the the black stain in the spot where Jim mm. used to sleep and he reaches up with his hand and he touches his mouth and it leaves um, one little bit of black ink yeah. on his lip um, and I think it's like sort of the kiss of death which will come, come back later oh I hadn't thought about that yeah. oh gross oh boy alright so uh, uh, George introduces himself his name is George Falconer mm-hmm um, I wrote down Falconer question mark because I've never met anybody whose last name is Falconer. It turns out uh, Tom Ford, director of the film, I believe, uh, had a, a, a relationship with someone whose last name was indeed Falconer. And oh. apparently he also designs some sunglasses and one uh, style of the glasses within his line are called the Falconer, if I'm not mistaken. That's or maybe it was a watch. I think it was a, I think it was sunglasses. I forget exactly. Anyway, um, I've got a word here that says something good. Oh, Jennifer Goodwin. As George is going about his morning, finding the frozen loaf of bread still in the freezer that was supposed to be taken out yesterday, and, you know, getting dressed and this, that, and the other thing. I want to point out that that as you see him getting ready, how meticulous everything is in the house. Like, Yeah. And he, when he gets up, there's a bunch of stuff on the floor, right? Yeah. He, he walks. You see his bare feet walk kind of past all these things and they're not it's not like he has a messy floor right he has systematically placed objects in a meaningful way on the floor there's keys there's notes there's papers 
I do um, agree with that. Really, really like systematically laid out on the floor. Hmm. And he and he says in the he says too, um, it takes a while to become George in the morning. Yeah. Which I think is like a, a symptom of like the systematic, meticulous nature. Yeah, and the fact that he's severely depressed. He's living a lie. <sighs> oh, George. He winds up uh, sitting down on the throne to, you know, drop the kids off at the pool. Mm-hmm. And out his window, he sees a bunch of little children playing in the yard across the street. Yeah. And their mother, played by uh, the lovely Jennifer Goodwin, mm-hmm. is standing in the doorway yelling at the kids to come back into the house or whatever. Um, her husband shows up. I don't think we hear any dialogue yeah, we don't between hear those any dialogue. two. But you can tell he's kind of a, uh, you know, early 60s kind of grump of a dad. He looks like he's, uh, you know, just pretty upset. He means era by by early sixties, by the way, not age. Right, right, right. Yes, because this takes place in uh, sixty three. Is it even sixty three? I believe it's sixty three. Okay, Kennedy's still alive. Kennedy though. Is we still know alive. that much. Um, and we even hear at one point on the radio some talk about the Bay of Pigs uh, uh, incident and all that jazz. Actually, is Kennedy? It's November thirtieth. Yeah. When and was Kennedy? Eleven twenty two. Oh really? Yeah. So wait, how do we know this is November thirtieth? I know that because I learned that in my research. It's a. Uh, it takes place on the day that the movie takes place is November thirtieth, and they pointed that out um, when he pulls up to the school in his fancy Mercedes. Yeah, was November thirtieth. That was shot on the day that the movie takes place. They, wow, they made a point of saying that. Yeah. Huh. But anyways, so regardless. Uh, maybe it was 1962. I'm not sure because we do hear Kennedy's voice on the radio. Right, it doesn't necessarily mean Kennedy's alive. It doesn't, but we also hear them talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis as yeah. a present day concern. True. Okay. So maybe it is 62. I feel like Kennedy's still alive. Heck, in maybe this it's movie. 60. I don't know. It's the 60s for sure. There we go. Uh, so yeah, we see this taste for the neighbors across the street, and um, we get uh, a hint that sort of the you know the 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 dad across the street is a pretty mean guy. Yeah. Um, and then Jennifer Goodwin spots George watching them from his window, not really realizing that it is the window right next to his toilet where he's going to the bathroom. He's embarrassed. He dodges out of the way. That's a kind of that. Is yeah. this when he uh, he gets the call from Charlie? He does. Slash Charlotte, played by Julianne Moore. Yeah, and and kind of leading leading up to that, there's a couple things with the. You know, first the family across the way, not hearing anything. This idea that um, he sees them, but he doesn't participate. Sure, right. That I think that's why he can't hear them. Is like he's he's so removed from the situation. Yeah. Um, there's also something we see. Um, I don't remember if it's in the bathroom or if it's in another part of the house. Okay. Um, but we see uh, medication. Mm. We see a pill bottle on. A, a table or a counter or something um, All right. and, and I think that's important for later in the film um, and then as he heads to the bathroom um, he walks sort of past this giant like glass window that leads to like I don't know like an not an atrium but like a little courtyard area outside yeah and he stops because he gets this image of Jim playing with the dog outside All right and um when he when he gets that in the present, everything is very desaturated. It's almost even black and white. It's like very very yeah. Like it's almost like Man of Steel dull. It's yeah, it's real dull. Um, but when he gets when he's brought back to when he's reminded of something beautiful, yeah, he gets like all this color. So the scene where he sees 
um, Jim outside playing with the dog is this ultra bright, you know, monochrome, like beautiful golden. Right. And then full of life. And then all of a sudden back to him looking out an empty at an empty courtyard area. Yeah. And uh, and it's all just kind of gray and stuff. And then he feels very cold. Yeah. And then we see him in the in the bathroom. Mm. Going to that bathroom. Oh, we should point out they're in they're in Los Angeles, right? Or are they in some other part of Southern California? Yeah, I think I think we're skipping over some stuff because it's not. So he doesn't answer the Charlie thing. There's there's actually another phone call before that. There's a phone call before Charlie. Yeah, the phone rings. Well, we assume that it's Charlie. By we eventually know that it's Charlie calling on the phone. But so um, he gets that he gets that chest pain. um, Oh yeah. And then um, he sits at the table, and at the table he's thinking about um, he was resi- he w- at a time where it was like him and Jim, and they were having this like really intimate, close moment, and he's like really resistant to him. And Jim says to him, like like Jim's like we you know we we can be seen, it's fine, and that's why he's resistant to him. And he, and Jim says to him, you're you're the one who always says we're invisible. Oh. And the invisible thing, I think, is also important, which is why, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to waylay your, your... I don't remember this happening in, at all, let alone in that <laughs> moment there. Um, but they but they talk about the house in that moment um, yeah. a little bit. And the How fact the house is basically glass. all windows. Well, and he, they refer to it as a glass house, and I think right. that's important. It's um, the, the house is really clearly like a Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired house. Yeah, it's basically um, big... Huge beams of wood and then huge windows yep. like everywhere. And they and they they reference the glass house thing a, a couple times in the film. Yeah, and I think it represents a couple of things. One, um, George is part of a group that's discriminated against in, especially in the sixties. Discriminated oh, yeah. against still today, but especially in the sixties. Um, and I think maybe perhaps that live in a glass house to be finally one to be finally seen. Yeah, and. Um, also to maybe check themselves before they judge others, which is mm. sort of that whole proverb about those who live in glass houses don't throw stones. Shouldn't throw Shouldn't stones, throw stones right. Um, the other thing is, um, I think, kind of going along with what you were saying about seeing Jennifer Goodwin, is it allows him to look out into the world without being a part of it. Like, he's still, like, protected in his own his own home. Um, yeah. And the house, apparently, is really, really small. Hmm. And uh, they ended up building special walls that they can move in and out. So that oh, way wow. they could create rooms. So, like, the bedroom is actually the same room as the bathroom, which is the same room as the living room in the thing. So it's like, wow. yeah, because the house is super small, apparently. Huh. Yeah. I wonder um, if we could drive to that house. Yeah. So the first time the phone rings, um, he looks at it and d- doesn't answer it. And that's when we get up the flashback of the night Jim's cousin. Calls. Right. Yes. Um, uh, that voice of Jim's cousin, uh, Mr. Ackerley, played by John Hamm. John Hamm, yeah. Uh, star of, you know, uh, uh, what's it called there? Mad Men. And I think Mad Men had started at this point. Yeah. So, so John Hamm was in that whole early 60s mode. Yeah, so it's basically it's, it's Don sort of Draper like calling. Don Draper, yeah, yeah. calling to say, uh, my cousin, whom you're in love with, uh, has died in a car accident. And the family doesn't want you anywhere near the funeral or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, he, he says, I, I guess I need to get on the plane. He says, it's for family only. Yeah. And that, that line is like. Ice cold is what that is. It's, it's, it's so brutal. Yeah. That line. It's, yeah, it's so crushing, um, and you can see that in Colin Firth's face, in George's face, like his eyes tell us everything we need to know about like George's motivations throughout the rest of the film, like why he's doing everything he's doing is kind of motivated by 
you know, we're not going to consider you his family. Yeah, it's effed up. Um, effed. And so, up. A, so after the phone call, like while in, while we're in that flashback, he goes to Charlie's house. Right. He runs to Charlie's house. Is in it rain. raining? It's yes. Pouring down rain. And he's a, a mess, and he's staggering over, and she answers the door, and they, you know, do a big wet uh, cry, scream in silence sort of thing. And, and all we hear is the rain. We don't hear them at all. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like sad and beautiful all at the same time. It's just heartbreaking. Um, yeah. And this idea that, like, you only remember certain details of events like this, you know? Yeah. And it establishes that Charlie lives, like, right up the block. Right up the block, within running distance. Super convenient. Yeah. Um, Charlie is a English-born friend of his, and it sounds like they were very good friends in England and came to America together, if I'm not mistaken. They were a couple. They were. That's right. Oh, well, we find that out later. But you're right. So then the bathroom happens, and the phone rings again. Okay. And this time, it's Charlie. She's doing her makeup. She says something about make sure you bring some gin for tonight. And um, what else does she he, say? He kind of tries to get out of it a little bit. Does he? Yeah, I feel like he does. But it, I like that the fact that he answers the phone with his pants around his ankles. Yeah, well, who doesn't like, you know, Colin Firth answering a phone with his pants around sure. his ankles? What? Sure. Um, so, yeah, we, we get a taste for his, his back and forth with Charlie and how close they are. And mm-hmm. uh, at, at, at first on that phone call, I almost thought... Charlie might be a prostitute that he visits regularly. Because I feel like she mentioned something else in the call about other appointments. I could be wrong. I, I could be very wrong. But Or no, maybe it was the way the call was worded. It almost made it seem like uh, they have a regularly scheduled appointment, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But um, it was hard to say. But Do you notice anything else interesting about how her... her- side of the conversation was presented was it in the uh the warm bright full color living colors of, yeah she, that she, we don't see she's in full color oh um, you know she's one of the things that george thinks is beautiful and he loves her and yeah um she's his friend and so she's presented in full color in that scene mm, okay charlie is in full color because we're not seeing her through george's eyes at that moment this is one of the few scenes that takes place without george in it kind yeah of. i mean I mean, it's, he's in it because he's on the other end of the I phone. I think the color represents how George feels about the things. Right, so, right. So he feels warmly about her, so we see her warmly. Yeah, so, but yeah. it's like any other thing that we see where that happens, George is there the in the room with the person and the feeling. And this we is see the, the transition yeah. when George is there. That's correct. Pretty cool. Um, does George go to go to work? He goes well, to work at the college or does something else happen in between? First. Oh, yeah, and we see that he keeps a gun in his desk. And he puts it in his bag. A revolver, which he puts in his briefcase to go to a school where he's a mm-hmm. teacher, and a college, he, pro- a literature professor, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And then he goes, um, yeah, he's talking about Huxley in the right in the, the, the school scene. But he, um, that's when he goes and talks to the housekeeper, gives her some notes. Yeah. And uh, talks her about that, the bread. <laughs> take the bread out of the freezer for crying out loud. It's too fresh. But he does something here that I think is... You know, we don't know exactly what's going on. We have a feeling for things, but they right. they continue to give us more hints about what's going on. And um, he kisses the the woman on the cheek. He thanks her. Yeah. Says, Thank you. And then he leans over and he kisses the maid on the cheek. And her facial expression is, this has never happened. Yeah. That's true. Dear sweet. 
So we know something is wrong. Maid. Maid, I don't remember her name. Um, I feel like by the time the gun is introduced, we can get a pretty good guess for what we he's have planning to do. We have a feel for it. But still, you know, they give us the... But then he then he drives away in slow motion. Do you remember that? To go to school? To go to school. To go to work. I don't remember that being in slow motion. He, he sees the kids outside, and Jennifer yeah. Goodwin outside. Oh. He drives by in slow motion, and the little boy's pointing a fake gun at him, and he does the little, like, pistol symbol with his fingers. Yeah. He sees the little girl in her dress and stuff, and, um... And, Threat, uh... Threatens to kill that kid? Yeah. It's well, all, he kind of does later. He does later, but, um... He, uh... He sees this all in slow motion, almost like, this is the last time I'm ever going to see these people. Like, mm, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, should we... Everybody listening has watched Watch the, the movie. movie. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty clear George is planning to off himself. Yeah. Probably tonight. Certainly in the very near future. Right. He gets to school. Uh, he's walking along through the uh, through the whole quad and everything. So my note here November is... November 30th. The, the day, day this movie takes place is November 30th, 1963. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry. So Kennedy was assassinated by then. Yeah. Or was he assassinated December 22nd? 11-22-63. It was a Okay, wow. There's a TV series coming out um, based on the Stephen King book that I loved. Just uh, Which one was that? 11-22-63. Oh, well, there you have it. There you have it. So, um, so yeah, so he, gets to, he pulls up to the school. He gets to the school. He's walking through the, uh, you know, through the quad trying to get to his building, his classroom. We see... Um, Do you remember how they show him walking? Kind of. I mean, they show him a couple different ways. It's kind of in slow-mo. There's the bit where he's walking straight down the middle of the sidewalk and everybody else is coming in the opposite direction. He's the only one going upstream. Yeah. And and they only show him from the back in that that moment. Everybody's saying, like, hi to him and waving to him, but, like... We're completely disconnected from that because yeah. we don't see his face. Right. We don't we know don't how he connects to them. We don't even see a twitch of the head or anything. Right. Which is very strange. But in a way, that's almost uh, antithetical of his whole feeling invisible thing because everybody there seems happy to see him. Nobody no, nobody sees his real self. Yeah, I guess he, that's he, true. He really is. He's, he's completely invisible. Yeah. Well, then he spots uh, Nicholas Holt, Kenny. Mm-hmm. Kenny, what is his last name? I, f- I remember him having a real fun last name. Kenny Potter. Never mind. Potter, that's yeah, not he calls him Mr. Potter at one moment, and I thought, that's a very Harry Potter thing, the, 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 teach, uh, the, the teacher calling him Mr. Potter. Yeah, um, and he's on the he's chilling in the grass with his fuzzy sweater and this beautiful young woman who seems to always be smoking a cigarette. And uh, so he spots them, and it's pretty clear that Kenny is indeed seeing... The true side of Professor George Falconer, and they make a uh, they make a pretty a pretty clear connection just in that in that glance between each other. Yeah. Um, what is it? Uh, George gets into his office again and calls Charlotte again. Oh no, that's way that's way later. This is where I wrote: Is she a hooker? Um, no, that's later. So he goes to reception and talks to the receptionist there. Remember, oh yes, and, and she says that's that, where I first noticed the the glowing. Yeah. Part. So, so she says, um, tells him the story about how a student came in asking for his address and he was very charming and she gave it to him before she even realized what she was doing. Um, and he tells her how beautiful she is. And, he, and when she's talking, he looks at her lips. Yeah. And that's when the color like bursts. Yeah. Like, you see it really go like, from dull to just super bright, gorgeous, golden and red and what have you. And it kind of comes back a little bit. Yeah. And then you see her neck and you see him kind of sniff and it comes back again. 
Oh yeah, and it's very very subtle. Picks out which perfume she's wearing. Exactly. Um, it's the nail on the head. And and he leaves her standing there shocked that he told her how beautiful she was because I think again, kind of like the maid, this this doesn't happen. Right. So. Right. Oh well. Um, now we have we have Lee Pace introduced. Do you have that in your notes? There? I don't know. Lee Pace plays a uh, which kind of professor? As uh, a colleague of his, I don't remember. Okay, they didn't mention. Um, but he's like really, really caught up in the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Yeah. Um, which, again, was over I, long before yeah, Kennedy was assassinated. It's, this is strange. This so, timing. Um. So uh, he talks about how he's purchased a bomb shelter, and you got to get on that because you don't want other people to know your bomb shelter is better than theirs. And, right. Um, and while they're talking, they pass by this tennis court, and uh, there are a couple of shirtless guys hanging out with the boys. Playing, yeah, the, the, it's playing. Uh, Kenny Loggins uh, playing with the hanging with the boys, playing with the boys. I, I don't remember. But yeah, there are some shirtless young men playing tennis. And George is uh, definitely enjoying uh, getting a slow motion eye full of their. Well, we get a color burst again of their torsos. We do get a color burst. Yeah. We see very clearly that one of those men has a pretty good Audi belly button going on, <laughs> and uh, and 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 George is uh, you know he's a, he's appreciating the beauty of life even as he's planning to. Uh, I, that's that's dead on, man. Take I think, his own. I think that's like a dead on uh, account of what what is going on in that scene. He's really appreciating the beauty of life. It's making me sad, though, because he's still planning to kill himself, and yeah. it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So then, uh, do you have him teaching? Yeah, uh, you know, he teaches his class. He's talking about uh, Aldous Huxley. He's, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kenny's uh, sort of girlfriend Lois. is full. It's Lois, yes. Yeah, she's fully just smoking cigarettes right there in the middle of class. <laughs> yeah. um, some uh, some student asks him a question about uh huxley an anti-semite right was huxley an anti-semite and george defends uh defends him saying like no of course he wasn't uh, i forget the exact he defends argument. the nazis so so a couple things happen um he doesn't really defend the nazis no I well specify but so, doesn't doesn't the student's question not really have anything to do with the nazis but the kid kind of somehow makes it about the nazis he, well he's trying to turn huxley into a into a villain here. yeah but so in on the way to the classroom, we hear George talk about how, like, the kids essentially look like cows. They're like bovine. Yeah. And that they just – he sort of talks about the decline of um, intelligence in young people hmm. in the country, um, which obviously has continued and we still feel today. Oh, sure. Um, and so he has this real negative, view, like, view on youth, um, and he doesn't really have faith in them. And sort of the answers that he gives, um, his – he gets that daydream of being a water again. Like he, he, yeah. he asks what the students like thought about something in the book and a kid starts to talk. He's like, well, the book is just about this dude who's rich and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then he starts daydreaming about being pulled down under the water again. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he sees Kenny and Lois and, um, smoking in the classroom when he, when he locks eyes with Kenny though, we get the color burst. We get the color burst. Yeah. Cause Kenny's a very handsome Nicholas Holt. Yeah, and so then the kid asks the question about um, about was Huxley a, a anti-Semite because he talks about a passage in the Bible. Um, and I don't That's know, what it was. I don't exactly remember what the passage was, but basically um, what he tells him is he wasn't an anti-Semite, um, and he talks about how like we live in an age of fear. Yeah. Right. Um, which is relevant to today. Um, the fear of minorities, fear of dying alone, fear, uh, he says fear of being invisible. Yeah. And he, and he does, 
addresses the Nazis and he said, you know, the Nazis um, had a fear. Yeah. It wasn't a real fear, but they had a fear. Yeah. Um, and then that's sort of how he, he kind of defends that, that whole thing. Hmm. Hmm. I got to read more Aldous Huxley. Okay. I think. Where were we here? Am I on my second page of notes already? No, I'm not. Yeah, because you had the, you had the phone call with Charlie and I have that like in a, like a scene or two. Huh? Yeah. How does that happen? I don't know. Gosh, I don't know either. All right. Um. After class. After class. Is that when he gets the phone call with Charlie? Because well, he's cleaning out his office, he ha- too. He has a discussion with Kenny first. They walk. Remember, they... Uh, See, I thought that was after he cleaned out his office. No. I mean, I... Nope. Oh, but rather... Is this when Kenny buys him the yeah, pencil so they, sharpener? So they have this They have this walk, and they um, they have a discussion, and it seems like Kenny's the, sort of the exception to the rule. Yeah, and you can tell Kenny's basically fishing around, sort of saying, like, I'm romantically interested in you, Mr. Teacher Guy, and yeah. we can't really talk about it out loud, I fe- but... I, I felt like that was really, really clear, but um, the way I understand to- the way Tom Ford, the director, saw it was... He was. He didn't know that his teacher was gay. Oh, um, that there may have been some suspicion. All right, but uh, but he doesn't know. Hmm. And that maybe maybe Kenny doesn't know about himself necessarily. Interesting. And we'll we'll address some of those things that would contradict that a little bit later because they, they sure in the film. But um, but I think like the fact that the kid's curious is really intriguing to George. Well, sure. But they, they, so they walk through the campus together, and I thought it was really interesting the shot um, that they use. They use um, the same hallway uh, twice. Oh, so yeah. So they walk and they like take a corner, and all of a sudden they're in the same hallway, but you don't realize it because they move the camera in closer and at a different angle. Oh. But if you look really closely, they're walking the same direction that they were walking before. That's very strange. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's like a neat filmmaking thing. You can, you can dual, or like, I think people underestimate what you can do with camera angles and you can completely right. trick. We had no idea that they were doing that at the time. So, I sure didn't. Yeah. So it's, it seems like a different building when it's really just the exact same thing. Huh? Yeah. Well, good, good move, frankly. Yeah. And Save they, yourself some time. And he asked him about drugs. You ever take drugs? Oh yeah. And he's, and he said, he talks about how he can't really get by. Kenny says he can't really get by without taking drugs. And, and George is resistant at first. He's like, I don't think I should be talking about this with you. Right. And then he's like, you know, you know, what about mescaline? And George is like, <laughs> he's like, I had a problem with mescaline once. I shaved yeah. off an eyebrow because I looked in the mirror and didn't, didn't like what I saw. So I thought I could fix it by shaving my eyebrow. I had to wear a bandage over right. my eyebrow for six weeks, which oh, is, um, a true story that happened to Tom Ford. Oh, really? Yeah. He shaved off his own eyebrow? Yeah, on mescaline. From, on a mescaline trip. Yeah. Huh. I've never tried mescaline. Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely against the idea. <laughs> I'm kidding. Kids, you stay off the drugs stay out the drugs. there. Uh, so Kenny, Kenny tells uh, George that he watches him in class, and uh, we get like a really close-up on Kenny's face, and the color just like rushes in. Well, sure. Again. Um, and I think it's safe to say George is attracted to Kenny. And I think that's when he buys the the pencil sharpener for him, right? Yeah, and he picks out a blue one. Kenny picks no, he picks out a red one, and uh, and George picks out a yellow one because he because George talks about what colors could mean and and he's like, well, what does this mean? And I think he says uh, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean uh, passion or anger. 
Yeah, that's about red. About red. That's what Kenny chose. George picks a yellow one. He does pick yellow. And they don't they don't really you'd think it'd be blue with how sad he was, but um, yeah. yeah, he picks a yellow one because he shows it again later. And I didn't write this down in my initial scene for the notes, my notes right. for the scene, but I wrote it down later when we see the pencil sharpener again that it was yellow. Um, and Kenny's kind of surprised. He's like, you know, you walked all this way just to talk to me. And George is like, yeah, why not? Um, and then that's when he goes to his office to clean out his desk. That's when he cleans out his desk. <laughs> and we see that he's got... The gun with him still. He does have the gun. Which is not great. And uh, I thought, uh, let me see. So I got this is where he calls Charlie. Okay. Wow. So I uh, did a big old skip in my notes there. Yeah, that first scene, I think, where you had this down when he's in the office, he's waiting for 1030. Right? Mm. So like he's sitting on the edge of his desk, and he's looking at the clock. And the moment it hits 1030, he grabs his bag and goes. It's like he's so meticulous and so specific about everything in his life yeah um that he he like doesn't go to class until he needs to like it's time to go to class weird yeah but that's how i treat class too (laughs) so he calls charlie again yep i'm still confused about whether or not she's a hooker myself (laughs) um he's got the gun in his briefcase and let's see he's cleaning out his office and then doesn't Kenny catch him then on his way to his car to leave for the day? Yeah, so he, he asks her if... She, he asks Charlie if he should bring something, and she says vodka. Tank, gin. Tank, gin. Tangeray gin, because she likes right. the bottle. Gin. And he's like, you like the, the gin. Yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah. Well, I mean, he, gin's pretty gnarly. Sort of adjusting, uh, suggesting, one, their playful nature, but also um, she drinks too much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and then, Charlotte. And then he goes to the car, and... Pull, starts to pull the gun out of his bag. He does. And that's when Kenny shows up. Kenny shows up, interrupts him taking the gun out of his bag, and uh, asks him about why he was cleaning out his office, and then asks him if he'd like to meet for a drink sometime. Yeah. Which is good, because, you know, Kenny uh, doesn't even realize it, but he's kind of in the process of maybe giving George something to live for. Yeah. Well, and... and um George asks him why Kenny wants to go for a drink, and he says, "Because I think you might need a friend." Yeah, and it was like such a touching moment in the in the film. I thought, um, and George, the color flushes in that in that moment, and George says, "You may be right." Mm-hmm. And he does he, need a friend, and then he leaves and goes to the bank. Goes to the bank. He cleans out his safety deposit box. Mm-hmm. Um, finds a. Uh, is that where he finds the nude picture yeah. of uh, Jim, he, yeah, which he kept in a safety deposit box? Yeah, because I think in that age you could never like have that at home, something like that. I think you would keep that secreted away somewhere. Maybe that's it. Jim is nude, out on a rock, um, and we get and just we, smiling from ear to ear. And we get the and we get the flashback at that. Scene. Oh yes, where they have the conversation. Now that conversation, they're they're sending them. There are quite a few flashbacks in this movie, but this one. Is this the only one that's in black and white? It's in black and white. And there's a, I think there's a really good reason behind that. Let's hear it. So next to... So we know a couple things about the scene. Um, we know that it's probably the, the, the moment that he takes the black and white photo. So we know he's taking black and white photos, as well as there's a camera sitting next to him when they're sending themselves on the rocks. Okay. So I think um, because he's shooting this in black and white, yeah. he remembers the scene as black and white. Oh. Like the only the only physical proof that he has that this happened yeah. is in black and white. 
That's true. And then this scene takes place pretty soon before Jim's fatal car crash, doesn't it? Doesn't Jim mention in this Uh, conversation that when he goes to Colorado, he's going to want to take the dogs because his mom likes them so much? That's in a scene later when they're reading. Oh, that's in the reading scene. Okay. All right. Well, spoiler for the reading scene then, ladies and gentlemen. Um, So Jim has this flashback of he and – or rather, George has a flashback of he and Jim on the rocks. And then – he leaves the safety deposit box room with everything from his box. Yep. But then he stays in the bank. He goes to withdraw money. That's what it is. And he forgot his checkbook. He forgot his checkbook, and he's looking through his briefcase, and the gun is plainly visible. Now, I was like, whoa. Is he going to take the gun out and blow well, it away? No, I was thinking somebody else is going to see that he's got a gun and freak out, and this movie was about to take a big old yeah. turn. I like the... I like I, I actually thought the bank teller was maybe going to see that too because she's um, a little flirtatious with him in both those moments, both the safe deposit box and the, um, the uh, I, I forgot my yeah. checkbook scene. And I, I kind of thought maybe she was going to follow him over because she's well, but has no idea. I feel like when he when he's like, oh, I seem to have forgotten my checkbook and turns to walk away, I feel like she gives him a really mean look as uh, he's going. Yeah. And I'm wondering if maybe... Maybe that's her just being like, I know this dude's a gay dude, and I don't like that. It feels a little gonna... contrary to like sort of how she treated him in the safe deposit box room to me. But but why wouldn't there be well, a contradiction? Well, she could, she could be know? she could be um, giving him that sort of. I, I thought it was. I, I thought it was like a giving stun. him a stink eye. I thought it was maybe a little more of a stun look, but maybe it could be because she was hoping to spend more time with him, and he turned around and walked away. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So, I don't know. It could be either way. The teller gives him the stink eye. We know that much. He's sitting down in the bank lobby looking through his briefcase. We can plainly see the gun. And a little pair of shoes step up in front of him. And it's uh, the neighbor girl from across the street. And I I absolutely love the shot. Anytime there's like really beautiful reflective shots, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. A beautiful reflective She's shot. She's wearing a little blue dress and she looks really pretty and... She's carrying a scorpion in a jar, and she's in full color. In she, full color, yes. She gets the she gets the color treatment, which is like kind of a cool like Wizard of Oz thing. So she walks up, and you see her feet there, and then she taps her feet, and the color shows up. And oh it's yeah, kind of that's like true. A, like a Wizard of Oz thing. Yeah, it's little kind of, Dorothy, Dorothy Gale kind of thing. Okay. Um, but yes, but why on earth would any little girl walk around with a scorpion in a jar? There's an interesting story behind that. Actually. Tell me that story. So, well, let's let's talk about what she says about the scorpion in the jar. I'm afraid to. Okay, so she says, would you like to meet Charlton Heston? That's the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Charlton's a scorpion. Um, they, uh, they drop bugs into it, and they watch it, the scorpion fight and kill and eat the bugs. Yeah. Um, and so they talk about how it's like the Colosseum. So her brother Tom put little columns around the jar. So... This this scene is a story out of director Tom Ford's life. Remember, uh-huh. she says she has a brother named Tom. Right. And uh, in the scene, she talks about what her father thinks of George. Right. And she says that her father says George is light in his loafers. Which yeah. Is obviously, um, a derogatory term for um, gay people. Right. Um, but she doesn't know. She doesn't she know says, what that means. And she says, I don't know if that's true because I never see you're not wearing loafers. Um, and then she says, I think Tom may be a little light in his loafers. Hmm. And, uh, I read that, uh, Tom, this is true. Uh, the girl is his sister. Wow. In real life, the girl's playing right. his sister. Um, 
and uh, they did have a scorpion in a little jar, a little Charlton Heston scorpion. And, and she would carry it around to the bank? Well, I don't know about that part, but he said, um, uh, quote, her brother Tom was indeed light in his loafers. Tom well, Ford is, is gay. Um, a lot of the, the stories in the... the So there's... A, most of this is from the book, but there are pieces of his real life, of Tom, of Tom Ford's life, put yeah. into this as well. Hmm. And then I have Jennifer Goodwin with a big exclamation <laughs> yep. point because she shows up to hustle the girl away, and I think she invites George to come over that night. It's a cocktail party. To a cocktail party, but George has other plans. Yep. Plans that involve a six-shooter. And Charlie. And Charlie, but then eventually, yep. ultimately, a six-shooter. Does George leave the bank and go to the liquor store, or is there something in between? There is something in between. But when the girl gets walk- is? walked away, yeah, the color fades. It does. Yeah, it's very sad. And he has a look on his face that's a little like... He misses the scorpion yeah. that she carries around in the um, bank. George goes and buys ammo for his gun. Oh, that's right. And I remember the kid behind the counter being super young and thinking... Yeah, he looks like he's 15. I kept thinking, man, America's great, right? <laughs> um, just rows and rows of guns and this young kid selling, selling ammo. Um, but then he pulls, up in front of, he pulls his car up in front of a billboard. But we see, like, all we see at first are just eyes. Yeah, I just this big blue, set of eyes beautiful. that belong to a face. Yeah. And I remember thinking, that looks like Janet Lee. Yeah. And he goes into the liquor store, and he spots this uh, handsome young greaser, who we come to learn uh, is named Carlos, because as George comes out of the liquor store with his gang of Tangeray, he smashes the door into Carlos. The Tangeray smashes Carlos's cigarettes, fall out and get wet by all the Tangeray. And uh, George insists on going back in, buying Carlos a fresh pack. He also buys him. Does he buy him liquor too? Well, he, I think buy, he, he comes back out with two two bottles. I think he just replaces the bottles that just got smashed. Oh, is there two bottles that got smashed? I think there was only one. But he comes out with two. Maybe. Yeah, it's weird. But uh, but even Carlos is like, oh, no, you don't have to get me a new pack. And he's like, of course, I insist, blah, blah, blah. So they have a cigarette while standing about nine inches from each other yeah. and smoking in each other's faces. Can I can I address uh, of course. the billboard real fast? Because it actually applies to this, what you're talking about here. All right. Um, eyes are obviously really important in this. Sure, because um, George feels invisible. And, and because when he actually connects with someone and connects with their eyes – we get that like sort of like flush of color, but we also know something else. So the movie Psycho is very much about fear. Yeah. And we get this image of eyes. Um, and we know that fear is on George's mind because he just had this conversation with the kids right. in his class. Um, he also sees the dog um, before he goes into the liquor store. There's like a woman has a dog in a car and she, oh, yes. she has a, they have this conversation like it looks a lot like his dogs. Yeah. Um, and he like leans in and he kisses the dog. And uh, when he kisses the dog, the, the color floods back in. But then he, he does, he runs into Carlos and, uh, Carlos. and then they stand very close. Like you say, and have a chat and a smoke. But, um, uh, when, when he locks eyes with Carlos, when they're doing that, when they're having that, Hey, I remember if it's before they go in, to the place yeah i, th- I think but he locks eyes with them and the color comes in yeah i think like as soon as he sees carlos at all the color really comes yeah. in because carlos is a handsome devil another beautiful man right and uh carlos you know while they're talking carlos talks about how he's from madrid 
and he came to America because, you know, some American traveling in Madrid was like, oh, come to America and I can make you a star and this and that and the other thing. And then he kind of hints that, you know, maybe George might want to take him for a ride somewhere. And, you know, he's open to well, that George sort gives of him thing. money. He does, doesn't George he? George puts like a $20 bill in his hand. Yeah. To like help him out. Because yeah. he's, he's this guy who came from Madrid and he doesn't really, you know, he like came here to become an actor and... uh that hasn't worked out for him. Well, but I mean, because his accent is too thick. And don't they also establish that he like just got to America though, right? Like it's yeah. He uh, said they flew uh, me uh, here. They flew me here, but then then they heard me speak and heard they thought my accent was too thick. Yeah, but I feel like somewhere it's mentioned that he's really only been there for like a month or two. Yeah, like maybe. it's real. He's really new to town. Yeah. So yeah, George gives him some money, and Carlos is like, "Oh, don't you want to like take me somewhere now, dude?" Which. He, like, tries to get in, in George's not, car. Yeah. George is like, no. Nope. That's okay. That's okay, Carlos. Um, George heads back to his house. Well, they, they, they actually smoke another cigarette. They do. They, sit, they notice the sunset and how beautiful it is, and we get a really colorful thing again, right? Yeah. And, uh, and Carlos says it's from the smog. It's so pretty because of the smog. And then they go back around to the back of the car, and they lean against the car and have another cigarette, and they talk a little bit more. And uh, and he says, uh, essentially, he says something beautiful from something terrible. Yeah. Which is, like, another, like, sign to George, I think, that, like, hey, man, all hope is not lost. You can still have something beautiful from something terrible. Right. Take it from me, standing in front of this psycho billboard. Yeah. You can have something beautiful from something terrible. Um, I don't know. I almost want George to have said, you know what, Carlos? Let's, Let's drive off into the sunset together. You know, if, if but he if, didn't. Even if you just taken him home, like the course of events would have been very different. You know, yeah. That's what would have happened in the film. Who indeed? Um, but George goes home alone in this moment, mm-hmm. and we see him start laying out uh, basically all of his personal documents um, to sort of you know he lays out a bunch of keys that are all labeled. Um, we see his suit hanging with a note on it. Um, and then he even starts, uh, he starts, uh, sort of testing positions on his bed. Well, we, we actually have, we actually have a, a flashback before this. Oh, do we? We do. Which flashback? So he gets home and the neighbors. So neighbor, many flashbacks I've lost track of. So he gets home and there's, the neighbors are, um, having their cocktail party and it's real noisy outside. Yeah. And so he puts on a record. He goes to put on a record on and they get the flashback of the two men reading. This is where the reading flashback happens. Okay. So, um, George and Jim are curled up on a couch, sort of at opposite ends, uh, listening to music, reading the record stops. George is like, Oh, you have to go change it because you're the younger one and you're fast on your feet and that sort of thing. Um, and that's where they discuss that Jim wants to take the dogs with him when he makes his road trip to Colorado to see his parents, which will ultimately be the last time they see each other. So, uh, and George is reading metamorphosis. By uh, Kafka. Yeah. And Jim is reading Breakfast at Tiffany's. By right. Capote. Um, by Truman Capote. Uh, and the scene is kind of... I, I really like the scene um, because they they make a point of showing specific things. Yeah. They show the dog laying on the ground. This is where the other... Um, the dog cast came in. Because All right. the real dog wouldn't sit still. Aww. Um, so they have one dog on their laps and they have one dog on the ground. Um, and... Uh, they they sort of have these conversations about you know good work and bad work and um, music and 
you know, age. You get up, I'm old. Right. You're young and spry. And the dogs and stuff. And they sort of show the normalcy of their lives. Just how kind of almost mundane their lives are. Yeah, they're just a couple being a couple. And they they, gri- they kind of gripe at each other a little bit, but they also are kind of playful with each other. Right. And there's a statement on, like, lifestyle, right? So, you know, gay people are have been told for a long time that, oh, that's your lifestyle. Right. And for them, it's just normalcy. It's just just life, not lifestyle. And and that comes up again in the scene with Charlie, sort of. Mm. Um, just... But we'll, we'll, I guess we'll we'll address that in a minute. But then, but then he lays out the, the stuff. Do you remember what he what he writes on the note for the suit? For the suit, no. Tie in a Windsor knot. Oh, like he's so meticulous and so specific about how he wants everything to go that, like, even the suit that they are going to bury him in, he wants it to be just right. That makes sense. That's so George. But then he starts getting in those positions, like you were saying. Yeah, he starts uh, laying on the bed with the gun in his hand and practicing, like, I guess how to how best to shoot himself through the mouth without fully ruining the bed. Because then at one point he even brings over a sleeping bag yeah. and gets into that we, he and starts to... trying to do it with, with himself fully wrapped up in the sleeping bag. And he sits up in the bed with a pillow behind himself. He yeah. goes into the shower. Right. And then he kind of slips and falls. Then he, then he gets the sleeping bag out and it's like, yeah, it seems like he's just trying to figure out the the least messy way to do it, so that whoever has to clean it up won't won't be too uh, yeah. too uh, uh, you know what's the word uh, uh, hard on I the maid. Yeah, it won't be too hard on the maid. And then he leaves an, uh, a note in an envelope for his maid with a bunch of cash in it, tucked into the frozen bread bag, puts it back in the freezer for her. Yeah, um, I guess he's assuming that hopefully she'll find that before she finds his dead body, because I think yeah. he's. He, she's pretty much guaranteed to be the one who finds him. Well, and she, Heaven he, help us. He leaves a bunch of notes that are, that are sealed. He leaves one we see specifically is to Charlie. We don't right. know who the other ones are too. Um, yeah. This uh, the suicide is actually uh, the scene is based on a cousin of Tom Ford's. Oh my gosh! Um, really? Who did kill himself? Um, <gasps> and he laid everything out with instructions and then wrapped himself in a sleeping bag. Whoa! Oh, somebody else didn't turn their phone on silent. I am not the only one today. Well, that alarm going off uh, means we've uh, it's it's a, to a remind me to do something at three o'clock, and <laughs> it's three o'clock. Wow, let's let's wrap this up. <laughs> yeah, let's get it done. All right, so he's laid all this stuff out. He takes the bottle of Tangeray. He goes to Charlie. He walks past uh, Jennifer Goodwin's family having their cocktail party, and sort of does a bit of a way. Oh no, the little the little uh, the fantasy sequence. The little boy is, shoots the gun, but what does he imagine doing to the little boy? Oh, right, 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 yeah. So imagine pissing all over the kid. Well, I was about to get to that, yes. So, yeah, he's walking, and one of the little neighbor kids pops out of the bushes with a machine gun and shoots it at him. And um, does he say it? Yeah, he imagines just whizzing all over this kid's face. Because doesn't... Do you remember why? Yeah, somebody mentions... Jim. Jim says that... One of their dogs peed all over the peed kid, over right? The kid. Yeah, that's what felt, it was. He felt like simultaneously, like I don't know if he said exactly shame and pride or something, but right. that was the sentiment that like he was like oh horrified, yeah, you know, like, he's pretending embarrassed, to be right. pretending to be embarrassed, but really happy that the dog did it because right. they don't really like the kid because that kid you know is a little a little jerk. So yeah, so he env- he envisions this stream of water just blasting the kid in the face and the kid's like ah no and then it cuts back to fortunately he did not actually do that yeah. and he says something like uh would you like it if i 
you know, killed, killed you right now with a gun. You're always running around shooting everything. The kid says no. Yeah. Or I don't know. I don't know. Is that what he says? He says I don't know. And, he, and then George says, uh, do this again and we might find out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Or scary. Keep, keep doing this to people and you might find and out. And we might find out. But George has every intention of just going home later that night and killing himself. So he heads to Charlie's. Mm-hmm. They have a few drinks, I'm guessing. Well, he sees her roses outside. Roses. And the rose, like, blooms into color. Right. And we get, like, a split-second flashback of the night, the rainy night, when he's on her porch crying. Oh. And then she... And then After she opens, Jim's death. And then she opens the door and lets him in. Poor George. Yeah. They have a big old uh, talk. And uh, at one point in this, um, you know, they go on about their relationship in, in Britain, um, coming to America, this, that, and the other thing. At one point, they get into an argument about um what is it uh she calls well, oh yeah that's she, what it is she starts to compare compare their failed relationships right and how like how difficult it is to be alone and they right oh they slow dance to stormy weather and she says something about how jim is a substitute for like a real relationship i think what she's saying is for like a for real relationship real. with a woman well and she's saying with her really yeah she's saying, really really getting to yeah yeah they they, they after their but it's like she's suggesting that that only a relationship with a woman could be real and and obviously a relationship with her would be the most real as far as she's concerned. Yeah, no, but you're right. To refer to Jim as a substitute is a pretty big kick in the nuts. Yeah, and he because he was clearly in love with Jim. And Colin Firth has this George has this like so he stands up and yells at her in this tirade about how, you know, your husband left you after nine years yeah i was with jim for 16 years right and he's like what what could be more real what could be what could be more substantial than 16 years together right you know yeah and but that that argument i wrote during that argument i wrote the note look at us act because that argument just not to say that it was necessarily bad but i just got a feeling during that of like Oh, I'm not watching George and Charlie anymore. I'm watching Firth and Moore. Because you felt it was staged. Doing their lines. Yeah, you and know, it bummed me out a little. I thought about that. I don't know if this will make you feel any better. I think this is an argument they've had a million times. Oh. I think they're going through the motions. Because if you think about how quickly they get over it. Yeah. I think this is something that they've... They, maybe not the, all the specifics of, like, okay. is he, was he just a substitute? But... Like he talks about how she lives for drama. Like you, mm. like you live for feeling sorry for yourself, and she, you know you, you relish it. And she's like, I don't. Mm. I, I think that they've had this this type of argument over and over and over again throughout their their friendship, and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because they they love each other. Yeah, and like they're having this argument, and she's crying, and then he makes this comment about uh, maybe you should get some donuts because it's a reference to something they talked about earlier. Um, which she laughs at, and they just sit there, and they're, it's done. It's over. And yeah. they're friends again. It's not like this was a, a friendship-ending moment. Right. So That's good. Well, now that, that does put a new spin on it for me. I like that. Um, George goes home, continues his suicide prep. Well, what does she try to do when he, when he leaves? Probably kiss him on the mouth. She, he kisses her, and she struggles to hold him on her face. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. She just wants to... Wants to just bring him over to the straight side, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 
If it walks like a duck, Charlotte, that's all I can tell you. Um, <laughs> he goes home, he continues with the suicide prep, and then does he get a call from Holt, or does he just decide to uh, go out from, from Kenny? How, um, does, how is it that he winds up meeting Kenny? He goes home to finish the preparations, and he puts the gun to his head, and he can't really pull the trigger, and he... He he remembers meeting Jim. He has a flashback of to meeting Jim at that bar where Jim Jim's in his navy uniform and yeah. And I think I think that like he remembers like he, it's like sort of like a life moment flashing before your eyes. Yeah. And because of that, he like decides he can't do it without a drink. Ah. But but we should we should talk about the 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 navy bar the bar on the beach. Okay. Um, and that scene when he meets Jim. Jim's there and. Sailor uniform, right? He's a Navy man, I think. I believe he looks like uh, he looks like uh, Maverick in the. In could the... Be, he could be Navy. Could be yeah. Probably not Air Force. Probably not. Probably he's wearing Navy. white. So, yeah. Um, but I'm uh, saying, you know the you know the bar scene from Top Gun when they sing, yeah. uh, "You've lost that love and feeling." He was wearing that exact same kind of outfit. And that bar is like super packed, right? And uh, and George is outside smoking. And at first, Jim goes in. Excuse me. Jim goes in, and then he comes back out, and, and that's when they see, really. I mean. George sees him go in, but that's when they really lock eyes for the first time, and it's almost like a like a love at first sight. They he comes, Jim comes over and they have a conversation. And he's like, "Do you live near here?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "I'm thinking about moving here after discharge and mm. all this stuff." And then it starts to rain, right? And they go into the bar, and as they're like trying to make their way through a crowd, this beautiful bombshell grabs Jim, and she's like, "Buy me a drink." Yeah, and he looks. That just looks at George past this woman and says, "I think I'm taken." Oh, I forgot about that moment. And uh, and that was it. That's uh, whoa. That was Jim and George. Like that was their meet cute. That was their meet cute. Oh. And then and then we get back and George puts the gun down and runs out. He he literally runs out of the house. Yeah, and he goes to that same bar. Right? Yeah, did you see what was outside the house? No. So he runs out of the house, and, and he stops in the driveway for a second, and then he continues to run down the street. But when he comes out of the house, there is a – it's not lit, so it's you have to oh, look okay. for it. There is a motorcycle sitting in front of his house. Oh. We know somebody who rides a motorcycle. Is it Kenny Potter? It would be Kenny Potter. Uh-oh. Okay. So Kenny has parked his bike near George's house. Which makes me wonder if Kenny saw him with the gun to his head. Oh, maybe. Because hmm. we know that the house is a glass house, and uh, in, th- in theory, people could see him. Yeah, maybe if Kenny was sneaking around on the property. Exactly. You do hear a, a branch crunch as well as, oh. as George runs off, but you're not really sh- totally sure, I think, if it's somebody there or if it's George running. But Yeah. Hmm. So, yes, yeah, so he goes to the bar. He goes to the bar and he winds he winds up uh, bumping into Kenny there. Yeah, because or do the, they go to a second location? No, because the bar is like practically empty. Yeah, it's um, dead and same bartender, but he's old now. He's yeah, like twenty years later. <laughs> so and and, and and Kenny shows up, and uh, uh, they start talking. Yep. Uh, George talks about you know how he's like fairly uh, what wild and spontaneous. Well, Something like that, because then Kenny's like, "Well, let's go swimming," and George is just like, "Yeah, sure, okay." So they have this like kind of. Uh, well, Kenny talks about being utterly alone. Yeah, which is our, I think our first sign that Kenny is is George. Yeah, um, at a younger age, 
Um, then they sort of have a philosophical discussion about appearances and perception. Mm-hmm. And George, you know, I'm, says I'm exactly as I appear if you look closely. And he says, um, he says, uh, one of, I'm trying to remember exactly, just, just in this philosophical conversation, um, I'm not exactly sure how, how this came up, but he says, one of the things that has made this whole thing worthwhile is when I've been able to really connect with another human being. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another sign. Like, if you haven't picked up yet exactly what's supposed to happen, yeah, he's more so that like not for the audience but he it's almost like he's telling someone else what he's about to do yeah because he says one of the things that has made this whole thing worthwhile like he knows his life is at an end yeah and he's kind of telling this kid that he's he's his his life is over Mm. um and uh and then kenny talks about like well it's weird because you know to hear you talking about life because they tell you you know when you're a kid that when you become an adult all these things are going to open up for you and all this feels like you know, like BS and stuff. And is that really, you know, is it all BS? And he says, no, not, not all of it. And and he says, I feel like as I've gotten older, I just get sillier and sillier. Yeah. And then that's what it is. Sillier. Yeah. And then Kenny goes, let's go swimming. And George goes, okay. Yeah. And Kenny says like, oh, see, yeah, you are actually silly because anybody else. Yeah. That was a test. So they go and they run down to the beach. They get naked. They hop into the Pacific ocean, ladies and gentlemen, and they're swimming around and, uh, I think we see a little bit of the flash of George's daydream of kind of drowning, if I'm not mistaken. And then he gets tossed. We don't see that. We I just, thought maybe we're just seeing we him just, actually swimming for once. Yeah, we see the wave come up over him. Yeah, he gets a little tossed around, and uh, Kenny grabs him and drags him back onto the shore, naked as a jaybird, the two of them. Yeah. Um, and they decide they need to go back to George's house to uh, get warmed up and dried off and what have you. When Kenny notes, your head is bleeding. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. His head is indeed bleeding, sort of close to the eyebrow that he once shaved off. Sure. Because they make a joke about that. Um, they get back to George's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenny keeps calling him sir, and at one point... Uh, it drives me nuts, actually, that he does that. But That uh, he keeps calling him sir? Yeah. Well, see, I think he's establishing a bit of a uh, sub-dominant relationship mm-hmm. here. Because then, after putting the Band-Aid on... Um, he asks, like, is there something else I can blah, blah, blah? And George is like, well, you know, I think first you need to get out of those wet clothes. And Kenny says, yeah. like, is that an order, sir? Well, and so I think there's, uh, there's, I think Kenny is into being submissive to George. Well, actually, the, the order is actually when he asks, tells him to go get a beer. Oh, is a that little, when that happens? A little bit later. But there's something that is, I think, a little submissive in that scene that you're talking about, though. Yeah. Um, and so Kenny goes to the bathroom to get the uh, peroxide. Oh, or and, or something. and he and finds the he black finds, and white photo of naked Jim. And that's when he knows. Yeah, for sure. For sure. About his, about his teacher. Um, and then he goes in and they have this like really close, um, this close moment. They're very, their faces are very close to each other. And he bandages yeah. his head. And it's like kind of intimate. Um, and uh, and he's like, you should get those wet, wet clothes off. So Kenny goes to take a shower. Um Kenny knows that George is hurting at this point. Yeah, um, that's clear. And he, and in the classroom, he talked about being the fear of being invisible. And I think now that he knows that George is gay, he understands that that fear is George's fear, right? Sure. So I think he literally bears himself in the hopes of, of helping George. And he makes himself seen fighting the idea that as gay, that gay men are invisible. Hmm. All um, right. 
so I think I think like you know that is kind of a submissive thing to just like he just drops his trousers and turns around and he's naked in front of George yeah and then he goes and showers he does indeed then he gets out of the shower that's when we get the beer request is that an order sir yeah they go and like, George, uh, George like lights the fire and they put me he puts music on and yeah they, beers. they talk about Lois Lois um oh Lois and Kenny and Lois did sleep together he he asks he keeps asking about Lois and he's like well I feel like you really mean to ask me if we slept together ah and uh and I think when he says yes Kenny we learn that Kenny is a young George and Lois is a young Charlie Ooh, good point yeah how did I not see well you watched it twice I did watch it twice oh Lois they fall asleep separately in George's house. Um, George suddenly wakes up in his bed alone. There's, there's one thing that happens before that. Do they French? No, George asks Kenny why he got his address and tracked mm. him down. And Kenny says he wanted to see him somewhere other than school. But that he also was worried about him. Ah. And George says, what's there to worry about? I'm fine. But there's this look in his eyes that's like, I'm absolutely not fine. Um, and I think it like shows kind of Colin Firth's range as an actor. Just he can do, especially in this film, like when he gets the phone call, the gym's dead. Yeah, that's a long scene of just him, just his face. Yeah, um, he does a lot, and um, I think um, I think he really he's starting to realize something about Kenny, and um, as that realization hits him, after after he's had his second beer, um, he he. Kenny becomes blurry and he passes out. Right. And then he wakes up in his bed. Oh, well, he has the dream. The dream is back. And it's actually a, a, a really important version of the dream. The drowning dream? The drowning dream comes back. And instead of sinking, right. he goes to the top and he surfaces. Yes. Like the moment he takes air, he wakes up. Yeah. He's alone in his bed. He discovers Kenny is sleeping alone on the couch yeah. holding the gun yeah he goes to tuck kenny in a little bit more and sees the gun and, and takes it from him but right but i think he uh, kind of going along with what i was just saying like he realizes kenny's there to save him right um, kenny clearly had to have dragged george to bed and then gone snooping around the house a little bit to find that gun and he stayed and he stayed he stayed to protect george i think yeah um and uh and george at that point knows that he's he's loved you know not necessarily in the yeah. deep way that jim loved him but he's loved and and now he knows it right and somebody has seen who he really is so he locks up the gun opens the window do you remember we see out the window probably the neighbor's house an owl an owl he sees an owl and the owl flies off i don't remember that at all yeah an owl gotta watch for it man owls there which is important because in especially in film it's it's a important symbol um but i'll get to that in a second get to Um, it now this uh-huh. is when the owl happens. Yeah, so the owl the owl happens. And we'll get there. It's at, right at the end of this paragraph of notes I have here. Um, he looks at the moon and, he, and he, he gets this smile on his face. Like he starts to realize the good things in his life. Right. Um, we get a quick flash of, um, of him dancing with Charlie. Oh, yeah. During the Booker T and the MGs. Um, and then uh, he goes and takes the notes that he wrote for Charlie and the others and he burns them. That might be where he remembers the dancing. Hmm. Um, and uh, and then he says in narration, as he sits down back on his bed, do you remember what he says? Do you have that note? 
I don't. He says that owls are cool. He realizes that life is exactly the way it's meant to be. Oh. And he reaches up to turn off the light. And he feels a twinge in his arm. Oh, no. And In his right arm. In his right arm. Which was strange. Yeah, I always thought it was the left arm, too. It's supposed to be pretty much widely agreed upon that it's the left. Yeah, well. But he gets a weird twinge in his right arm. The lamp is on that side of the bed. And mm. Maybe it's just for, maybe they just cheated it for. Maybe they shot it and then reversed the footage. Yeah. I don't know. We may never know. Um, and so he falls down having the heart attack. Oh. And uh, you hear the clock ticking. And then the clock just suddenly stops. Now an owl, in, especially in film, probably in other forms of media as well. Yeah. Um, owls usually represent death. Oh. So the owl is there and the owl like flies off the tree branch. Yikes. Yeah. Um, and then uh, one of the moments I, re- I really liked about the film, uh, just like the ink spot at the beginning of the movie, um, yeah. Jim is there as he's laying there in the bedroom. Oh, that's right. And Jim she, walks in. And he kisses him right in the same spot that the ink spot was. On yeah. And George dies thinking of Jim. So the movie began with him lying in their bedroom thinking about Jim and he dies thinking about Jim. Um, and that's that's the movie, man. Well, it's also him dreaming that he were... That he that he had been able to kiss Jim goodbye one last time. Jim kissed him, and now here he is dreaming that Jim has come to kiss him. Well, again, almost the, kiss him hello, really. Yeah, well, and and well to like make sure he gets seen off to the to the other side, kind of. Yeah, thing. like kind of like we talked about the the black spot on his lip is the kiss of death, and Jim comes as he's dying and kisses right. him and he dies. So Jim's kiss is the kiss of death. Um, I like I I liked this movie even more the second time I, th- I think it's really beautiful and i think it's creative i think it has its problems um every movie at does um i like that uh there wasn't any replacing jim you know they have that conversation about jim was a substitute and, right like he's a substitute for real love or whatever and the this kid kind of comes along and reminds george that like not everything is terrible and there are connections that you can still make because George talks about making connections. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the kid can't be a substitute for Jim. Right. Um, but he could be something completely new. Well, he can't because Jim dies, right? Like, Well, George like, dies. I mean, George dies. But um, had he not died, perhaps he and Kenny. But that. But like, I guess what I'm saying is like, that's the way like George says it at the end of the movie. Things mm. are, are the way they're supposed to be. Yeah, that's the, also this true. This kid was never going to be a part of George's life, other yeah. than other than this one night, and um, and that's what I kind of love about it is that like this kid, like you're right, like in some fantasy, this could this kid could replace Jim, but he can't because that's yeah. not what happens in the film. He he like the movie holds true to this idea that he argues with Charlie that Jim was not a substitute, right? And so um, so just like Jim wasn't a substitute, this kid's not a substitute either. Um, and that like this love is real and it's permanent and it's, hmm. um, and it's, it's evident because George dies at the at the end of the film. No um, spoiler alert. If you haven't watched a single man, why'd you listen to this? Okay. Um, but also a, thanks for listening real quick about the pencil sharpener. Um, yeah. Kenny buys that, um, later in the bar, um, he takes the pencil sharpener out and shows it to Kenny, little yellow pencil sharpener. He's like, Oh, oh right. He's like, Oh, you kept it. And he says something. He says, one must always appreciate life's little gifts. Um, and I think the overall point of the film is that, and they beat us kind of over the head with it, um, is that the important things in life are the things that we usually overlook. Yeah. And um, we kind of keep going because of friendship and love and the things that connects us to them. So I think that's 
that's one of the reasons why I ended up really liking this film a lot is because I think that's a beautiful message to have. So hmm. it's it's a sad kind of a downer of a film, but it has like this really beautiful message in it. So yeah, I'm gonna move the microwave. It's so a very sad up. movie. Yeah. So I mean, did you like it? Hmm, I mean, yes. I'm not like crazy about it. Did you like it? Did you like it more than American in Paris? Hmm. That's a great question. Not entirely sure if I have an answer for it right now. Uh, did I like it? No, nah, I don't know. I mean, both movies. It's sort of like I've seen them each once. I'm not really in a hurry to see either one again. That sort of a thing, you know? Yeah. It's like, there it is. That was fine. Um, well, what's next? You want to you draw some movies? Let's find out what's next. Yeah. Um, maybe to be Hodorowsky's Dune. You know, you know the uh, every time you say it, it's not. So. You know the producers of Hodorowsky's Dune follow us on Twitter. I know, isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's pretty great, guys. If you're listening, thank you. Your movie is thank you for following, and your movie is in this here bucket, and we aim to uh, watch it just as soon as we randomly draw it. Now I'm coming around to seeing it. Now that they're following us on Twitter. Also, it's great. Why can't you just take my word for no, the fact I, I that it's great? That, I believe you that it, that you say it's great. I, I, you know, it's not a subject that would be something that I would normally watch. Is all I'm saying. You got something there. Is it Hodorowski's Dune? No. What you got? Sullivan's Travels. Good movie. Okay, Sullivan's Travels. All right. And Boom. I, I ripped a piece off of it. And I, I drew Mutiny on the Bounty. Oh. So we will see what these two movies have in common because no doubt with our the fate of the bucket yeah they have some type of connection wowzers all right or there's going to be some sort of piracy escapade over the next week in the in the news oh boy um, let's hope not sullivan's travels and mutiny on the bounty sullivan's travels is really cool yeah i know it's about an actor or yeah no, well it's about a i think it's about a director yeah i almost think i saw it or maybe you told me you almost seen it. watched it. I'm pretty sure I have not, but I know that it's one of those movies that I know I should see. It's in the bucket because yeah. you know you're supposed to watch it. So that's that's the movie, um, the movie, the movie, the episode for uh, this two weeks. Yeah, thank weeks. you for listening. And now get ready and watch Sullivan's Travels and Mutiny on the Bounty. I just want to say thank you again to Dwayne who does our, uh, our intros this week. We asked him to kind of. Uh, well, I discussed it with him, and, and we both agreed that uh, this week would be a more laid-back right. um, episode announcement in, in uh, light of the events in Paris. Um, so thank you to Dwayne. Thanks, uh, for Dwayne. once again helping us out. Uh, thank you to Acid Ink Selections for your recommendation on wine. Oh, yeah. Um, thank you to the Viewsters. Love you guys. Also, thank you to Katie, who we've talked about once one other time. Um, she uh, She gave me some pretty nifty suggestions for uh some things we should do via social media that we kind of have implemented oh cool and uh and yeah so um you guys are all great I, I feel i feel very loved and thank you to steve for taking this journey with me um i'm having a fun time have a great two weeks everyone bon cinema <laughs>